Hey guys, if you're looking for a car, I'm going to recommend you somebody that I would reach out to myself. I'm going to talk about Jacob Cahill, who works out there at Rusty Drew and Toyota. He's a sales consultant, and he offers a fun, low-pressure car buying experience. He's up there in Jefferson City, Missouri at 2105 Christie Drive. Any type of car you need from used to new, he is the man to put you in the car. Okay, reach out to him. His number is 573-535-5656 at extension 542. Or just reach out at jcahill at drewingauto.com. That's jcahill at drewingauto.com. I know the market right now, personally for me, has been very hard to negotiate. And, you know, you got a lot of people that are really trying to put food on the table and you can't blame them. But trust Jacob when he tells you he's trying to put you in the best car possible that you can afford. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. We're going to get to the show in just a minute. But for right now, I want to talk to you about one of our sponsors. Sometimes when you're driving on the road, you start hearing that thudding going on. Maybe that oil change light comes on. You think, oh, shit, what am I going to do? That's when you should reach out to Action Automotive. Located in St. Robert, Missouri at 128 April Drive, Action Automotive is your place to go for everything from oil changes to engine and transmission swaps. I know personally the owners, Caitlin and Evan York, who are two wonderful people from my, actually my hometown, and they just had their uh, newborn baby. They're open from Monday to Friday, 8 to 5. If you got that oil light on, you, uh, you're you thinking about getting, you know, it's time to switch out that 250,000 mile transmission on that uh, square body you got going on. These are the guys you want to go to, okay? Reach out to them. That's Action Automotive in St. Robert, Missouri, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Benny and the Guest. With you, as always, me, Ben. I'm joined today by a special guy I work with, um, had the pleasure of working with the past year, uh, Cody Sparkman. What's up, Cody? How you doing? Yeah. It's good to have you here, man. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Me and uh, me and Cody here, he brought me some of this nice little Johnny Walker. Try a little sip of it, because cheers, friend, anyway. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. All right. Okay. We're going to talk to Cody a little bit about his life. Um, me and me and him have actually, we haven't even worked close together except for the past like two months. Yeah. Where I've gotten to know him and his wife decently enough. And um, we just kind of have a lot of the same ideologies about life. And it's kind of, it's kind of nice to see some common sense in the world. So I wanted to get his perspective and what he's all about and what he's been through. Because I know he got some stories for me. Um, so we'll just kick it off starting... If you could just tell me where you're from, um, kind of a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, what it was like, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, well, I grew up in Missouri, where we're at now. Uh, small town, kind of small. It's not real small, but it's a suburb of St. Louis. It's uh, Hillsboro. Uh, born and raised there. Uh, my mom and dad still live in the same house that I grew up in. Uh, I went through the same high school or the same school from kindergarten all the way through graduation. And then afterwards, I went to junior college there and then eventually moved off to Southeast Missouri State in Cape Girardeau, um, went to a third year of college there and then stopped going to college, did some other things for a year and a half or so, and then eventually joined the Army, 
Yeah. Let me let me ask you real quick about kind of jumping back a little bit. Um, uh, you kind of told me a little bit uh, what when you were young, what drew you like? Were you like an outdoors guy? Were you an athletic dude? What was like your? Because I, I know you talked about soccer a bit, but I was played, that your main thing? Or um, yeah, soccer pretty much controlled my life. That's pretty much all I did. Like I would wake up, do school, and then it's like I played soccer year round growing up. Um, I did rec leagues and then got into like a competitive, the rec league I played in did like an all-star team within the league. Yeah. And then they would take that team and travel to like tournaments around the state and then over in Illinois and then a little in Iowa and a little in Indiana. And then we would oh, just, wow. it was like a, it was a recreational league. It didn't cost anything. Anybody could go play, but they took like the all-star kids. Basically, that's what they called it. And they started a program. And that little town now actually has a full-blown club team they started. Yeah. Um, that That's the sole purpose for that team is to like train for tournaments. And they go to bigger ones now. Jeez. But yeah, I started, God, I started soccer when I was like three. As soon as I could, fell in love with it. And I played all the way through high school. And then starting at like maybe seven or eight is when that travel little rec league team started. Yeah, yeah. And then when I got older, we aged out of those tournaments. So I went and tried out for a club team in St. Louis because like club soccer in St. Louis has been huge for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I played for – I initially tried for a lower-end team that was like a meal – uh, Dragasevich, I can't even pronounce the guy's name, but it's no longer a club, <laughs> but I played there for a couple years. And then I got into, used to be the Metro strikers. Okay. Um, I got into them later when Emil kind of went under, cause it was like just a smaller, I call it a farm team just cause it was like, it wasn't anything huge, but then they had like, back then they had Gallagher and everything. And then there was uh STLCC and like Colping, but I think Gallagher pretty much consumed up everybody. And now it's like, it's either your St. Louis soccer club or your Gallagher. Um, but yeah, I didn't I started know, I didn't know there was that much stuff going on with soccer. Up yeah, there. Like, dude, St. Louis crazy. is like, I, I'm mind blown that it took St. Louis so long to finally get an MLS team. Mm-hmm. Cause last year was the first year for their team. And it's like St. Louis, like they had the ambush and then the steamers for a little while, which is a kind of like a, an indoor team, I guess you'd call it pro level. Yeah. But it wasn't anything, MLS level, but right. now they have it. And it's like, they had a good year, but I was like this, the soccer scene in St. Louis is, it's always been huge in my eyes, unless a lot of people don't see it, but I being growing up in the world of soccer, uh, it was visible to me, I guess. Cause it was what I lived for. Yeah. Um, and then I played for Jeffco, the junior college I went to just did a walk on, no scholarship, just played there for two years. And when I went to SEMO, they didn't have a team for men at SEMO. Yeah. So I did, didn't do – I played there on like a um, – I hung out with the fraternity. I was like a friends <laughs> with Benevitz with a right, fraternity yeah. to tell the Kais. Um, I never like <laughs> pledged, or, uh, pledged or rushed or anything, but I hung out with them, had a bunch of friends there. And yeah. I played on their, their like fraternity team within their rec leagues that they did. And then I also played at some rec leagues within the school – um, there was indoor and outdoor just yeah. with a bunch of friends and like the fraternity guys. How long were you at SEMO for a year? Oh, okay. I just went for a year. Yeah. Um, uh, I was going to school. I, I went to Jefferson college, uh, in Hillsboro. Uh, I got an associate's degree in the arts of teaching. I had the goal to be a high school shop teacher 
because I love building things. Um, my high school shop teacher's name was uh, Corey Schweitzer. He was one of our baseball coaches. He was awesome. Um, and I thought shop class was fun. It was my favorite part of yeah, school yeah. besides sports. So I went to be a shop teacher. Well, when I was at SEMO, a whole bunch of programs kind of got cut and the market got flooded within like the high school. So there wasn't a lot of jobs. So I took a year off to rethink wow. life. And um, I actually transferred out of Missouri Baptist or out of SEMO to go to Missouri Baptist up in St. Louis because mm-hmm. I met my wife at SEMO. That's we'll, we'll get into that later. But I met her at SEMO. And then she lived up kind of by MOBAP. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'll try to get into school there just to finish my degree in something. Yeah. Because um, it's kind of stupid to stop as a, a junior and not finish it. <laughs> and uh, they were like, I had reached out to the soccer coach to see if they did walk-ons or anything. And he was like, yeah, come practice with us. And I went and did a practice with them. And like, as soon as we got done practicing, he's like, hey, we'll give you a scholarship. It was like 10K for... 10k a year and i think the tuition at the time was like six thousand, so it would have covered tuition and then plus like rent or something plus yeah plus housing and it would have covered food and everything i'm like well cool i'll jump on that but i didn't need it because like i just lived with her because she was you know 20 minutes down the road so instead of paying that kind of money for living in a crappy dorm i just stayed with her and her family um kind of mooching i guess but (laughs) anyway uh yeah (laughs) i uh did that and Played for, it was short-lived because I had like a, I don't know, I guess an arrogance that I wanted to, I was never on a point, I don't like, I'm not one to brag, but I I was never on a point on a team where I wasn't, I wasn't critical. Like I was always like, I had to be on the field. Yeah, you were, you were one of the key players. I was one of the key players. Like Mm -hmm. I, I always was like, I was always one of the captains. I was always the heart and soul. Um, I could play throughout high school. At Hillsborough, I played, even on my club teams, I would play um, a striker, which is like the forward up front. Um, I would play, I, like I spent a whole, my freshman year in high school, I started varsity. Um, I was a center mid or an attacking center mid, depending what we were doing. And then my sophomore year, um, our three of our four defensemen had graduated. Yeah. So they put me back as a, um, a sweeper, which was, if you – I don't know if you know anything about soccer, but nope, like, no, so, so not for a soccer, thing. you have typical formation will be like a four, four, two. So you'll have four defensemen, four midfielders, and then two forwards. Or, okay. Um, but we would run, we would run like four defensemen, but instead of being flat back, we would have three and then there would be a sweeper right behind them. And the sweeper kind of, the it's, it's kind of an old school tactic now, but sweepers would control the, basically control the defense and control the play based on, if the, if you, if sweeper had to be someone who could read the play yeah. as it was unfolding and see the game, so he would like adjust the defenseman based on what was going on and play position. He would position himself to set up or to block off passes. Okay, so so he's like the head defenseman. Head, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was like the leader of the defense and the last line of defense. But there, typically, it's somebody we we had the, a senior. His name was Kyle Helms. Did it when I was a freshman and. I learned a lot from him, but he, you had to be able to read the play, intercept the play, but you had to be confident within yourself to know when to just clear it or to like, to take the extra touch under pressure to get a play. So you're not just giving the ball right back to him. Yeah. So it's like, 
it was a, a lot of mental capacity, I guess, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. And then junior year, I went back to play in midfield and a lot of striker because we got some defensemen. A, a new defenseman came in from a move who was a good sweeper. So I went back to playing more of an attacking center mid and striker. And then my senior year, I kind of played everywhere, but more defense or uh, more uh, like the attacking center mid again. Okay. And then I did the same thing basically for my club teams. And then I was more of a midfielder for the college teams I played on. I like to be in mid because you kind of – you got the ball a lot. You were always in the scene. Yeah, you're, you're kind of in you're the action kind of, of it, right? And I was never – I was I was quick, but I wasn't necessarily – like I wasn't ever a speed demon. But I could set – I could put people into positions to get good opportunities. Yeah. I was always better at setting other people up than I was about me getting the goal myself. Um and if I scored, it was usually a pretty, pretty far shot or something like that. Yeah, it was never really up close and personal. Um, like, like a with a striker, um, crashing on the goalie was always kind of like a shot at like the top of the box or something. Okay. Um, but oh. yeah, I, I did that soccer. God, I played for seventeen years almost from three to I was like twenty, twenty one when I quit. Yeah, and then pretty much joined the army. And then I grew up like the outdoors. So you asked about the outdoors. I grew up mm-hmm. hunting. Um, fishing. My dad still to this day lives and breathes everything whitetail hunting. Um, yeah. Loves turkey hunting. Um, did a lot of camping and fishing growing up. Um, we went on camping trips every year um, on the Big Piney right behind the base, actually. Oh, okay. Um, did a lot of fishing there. And then, did you not fish a lot up at or like do any of that stuff in St. Louis, or did you guys kind of? We we did. Um, we had a we had some neighbors that had some farm ponds, and there was a couple of rivers, but the rivers up there. Um, they got, we never had a boat. So like we couldn't go out on the river, um, yeah. and like fishing, bank fishing from those rivers. Cause you got like big river and the Merrimack and like the Mississippi and Missouri are just big. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're just dirty. <laughs> they're nasty. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we, we weren't really ones that just go fish to fish. We would fish for food or like hunt for food. Like if it ever came to the day where I, we didn't eat like deer. Yeah. or turkey i would never hunt them it's because there's no point like i would never yeah. shoot them just to shoot them right yeah i never thought um, that i don't know if there's that many hunters like that that like not, go out there and just shoot not and, so much yeah it's like even the ones that are like people there's a lot of advocates that go against them but a lot of the hunters that they're like well these guys are trophy hunters it's like yeah but the trophy hunters probably eat the meat yeah they still not, eat it yeah. if not they're donating it to a local village who's going to live for a month or two on that animal yeah ted so nugent talks about it dude yeah. ted nugent's like like okay the trophy aspect is part of the game like it's part of this like thing that people do but he i think he said like 80 90 of hunters like that's not what they're going for it's just it is a trophy still yeah. it's something that you worked hard for that you earned so like can't take away the trophy aspect of that but like absolutely people are still eating it and utilizing every bit of it because yeah. that's how humans have done it for yeah as much as you can yeah every bit yeah it's the hunt like uh, i don't know i i love hunting i don't think i love it more now as an adult than i did when i was younger yeah um i used to remember i just look back now and remember being irritated that my dad would come in at like four o'clock to wake me up he's like <laughs> hey you're ready to go yeah. and i'm like no man it's four but now i'm like I mean, I wake up at four o'clock every day anyway now. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I enjoy, I enjoy the pursuit. Um, wh- I love being in the woods and watching the world wake up. Um, There's nothing better than that twilight, uh, like the, the turnover from dark 
to to sun up and absolutely that that you feel it and yeah. it's it's so hard because i try to every time i'm in a stand you try to watch that and see it turn yep and you don't really see it turn though like it just it kind of happens you you watch the event but it it's beautiful though. Yeah. I, you know, that's the, to the point it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a magical moment that lasts like 20 seconds. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. awesome. It's yeah. like, it's dark, dark, dark. Oh, beautiful. And then bam, it's daylight. It's yeah. like, dang it, where'd it go? But it's, it's awesome to catch it. Um, now my son, my oldest is getting into hunting pretty, pretty big. Um, but I, I'm definitely into it a lot more now than I was, but yeah, I grew up hunting. I mean, I, my dad, uh, my dad and his, his brother, uh, my uncle Mark, hunted together for years and we used to go, like rent farms around the state and go hunt conservation land um and like i remember being like four and five years old and like my dad would be up in a stand already set and my uncle would climb up with me on his shoulders like clinging to his oh, ears yeah and then my dad would grab me pull me in tie me in and then my uncle would go away go hunt and then at the end of it my uncle would come back and help Same help him process. help him get me down um and they, we did that for quite a few years until I got big enough to climb up there. And, um, yeah, as soon as I could hunt, um, as soon as I could take the, the hunter education course in Missouri, I did, I think I was 11. Yeah. Um, when did it with my dad, we got our, our little cards the same day. Um, and then just been hunting ever since when I get back, when I'm, when I'm home from the military. So, yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah. I love it. Do you, um, what I wanted to know, I had a, oh, um, when you met your wife, I wanted to jump back to that. Okay. So you were down at, you were down at, um, we we're at CMO still, right? Yep. So what, how'd that, how'd that go down? Um, so I was going, I was down there. They had the South, I chose CMO because it had one of the CMO Southeast Missouri State University. Mm-hmm. It's in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, I had a buddy that was down there and it was one of my best friend growing up. Um, he was down there from freshman year to he graduated and I was like, Hey, I reached out. He was finally moving out of the dorms and we got an apartment together. I'm like, well, that's a simple system. And then, uh, CMO had the industrial technology and education degree, which essentially is the shop teacher. So it was like, it was all building trades and stuff like that. Yeah. So through that system, I could become a shop teacher. So I was like, I'll go to CMO, finish my two years and then I'll be done and I'll get a job. Um, so we went down there and he's the one that got me affiliated with the Delta Chi fraternity. Um, he had a bunch of friends that he went to school with in high school that were in there. So just by association, they became friends of mine. We headed off pretty well. And, uh, I got a job. I went down early. So school started, I think in August is when classes actually started. And I moved down in like May to get the apartment. Cause we had signed oh, damn, for yeah. it and Donnie was already down there <laughs> anyway. A little early, yeah. So we went down early, but I wanted to try to find a job and get kind of settled and into somewhat of a routine before college started. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I was during the junior college, I was still living with my parents and I was 20, I guess I was 20 and I was kind of, kind of ready to move out on my own a little bit. Yeah. So that was like me dipping the toes of the water of not being, I don't want to say being a free man, but being a free man, you know, yeah. um, being, you know, being on my own. I, I think to that, to, not to interrupt you. I just, I think, um, you know, you're 32. Are you, uh, 34 now, 34. Yeah. And I'm 30, I'll be 31 next week. Yep. I think a lot of us and maybe, maybe in these rural areas, it's a little different, but like us to like 26, maybe 27, uh, are kind of the last breed where we had that, um, we felt a push to move out 
Yeah. Uh, when we were, you know, 18, hey, I'm going to, you know, be on my own now. I'm an adult. Yep. I don't think that's there anymore, really. No. Like, I, I think, you know, um, we bring up the army all the time, like, ad nauseum. But, like, uh, I talk to kids that they're, they're 19, 20 years old, and they're in the army, and their parents are still paying their phone bill. Yeah, but, and, oh, yeah. And you're like, dude, you, you make enough. Like, yeah. pay your bills. Like, you yeah. you have, like, three bills now. Oh, pay yeah. them. I, I, just real quick, I just always want to touch oh. on that because I think it's so crazy that you don't have a desire to be on your own anymore. Even if, like, yeah, it's hard financially, but, like, that's the whole point. You're you're a young adult. You're trying to make it. It's going to suck for a little bit, but I, I wish more people had that drive. Yeah, I don't – I think I agree wholeheartedly. I see uh, the amount of people who come in – that don't know how to use like a washing machine. Like, cause I, I, <laughs> yeah. I did my first yeah. two years as a BCT drill. It's like, I had to teach kids how to use washing machines, how to like do basically do hygiene. Cause like they just didn't do it. And you, as AIT, you still see that they don't do it sometimes. Online banking, online banking, it. cell yeah. phones, um, making sure their stuff works properly. Um, I think a lot of it falls on, I don't like to rip on parents, but I think a lot of it falls on their parents as well. Yeah. Because like my parents, I'm sure yours did the same, but like my parents, like, I mean, I got a bank account at a pretty young age. Yeah. I did work like side jobs. My dad is a union construction worker, um, just retired a couple of months, about a month and a half ago, but he did like, we would do a lot of concrete jobs on the side. He would do roofing. Um, building decks, building pole barns for people. Oh yeah. And he always took me, I mean, from the minute I was like, God, probably eight, I was walking roofs with them. I'd be like, like, I may not be able to pour concrete or like move the wheelbarrow, but I was like making sure that stuff was cleaned up. I was making sure they had a little gopher. I didn't, yeah, I didn't run out of, they didn't run out of shingles if they were roofing like him and my uncle Mark were always roofing together. Yeah. And I would like me and my cousin, Jeremy would keep them supplied. So they didn't have to stop roofing. They didn't have to get up to go run to get their shingles. They didn't have to get their nails. We would just drop the little coils and nails in their pouch and they just keep on nailing shingles down. Um, and then they'd pay us like they would pay us well, they did good on their own. And then, I mean, I was like, there was days, I mean, they did some jobs on roofs that were big and they'd make like, like 10 grand and they'd give me and Jeremy Jesus. a thousand a piece. And I mean, I was like 10, 12 years old. Like, Roofing is the, one of the hardest jobs oh, yeah. ever. Like it's one of, yeah. it's insane. Those dudes like construction workers in general are like absolute savages. Like what they put their bodies through. Oh yeah. Um, and like roofing always, you're always on a slope. You're always bent over. You're always kneeling down. Like it's just, it's, it's not, it's hard on the body. Yeah. But like he, my dad, my mom too, like they taught me to work young. They taught me to save money. They didn't deny me um, if I wanted to spend my money. They would be like, you're not going to – they would t- like they would guide me in a way that I didn't waste it on things that didn't provide joy, I guess you would say, or things that were like non-essential. Yeah. Like they were like, I, would, I want this toy. And they would just be like, yeah, go get it. Waste your money, you know. They guided me. But they – like my mom taught me how to – she went with me, got my bank account set up. I mean, I was pretty young when I started piling in and piling in money like that. And, um, they just, they, they were there, you know, they, right. they and they, they taught me how to be, they prepared me present. to be, to be they a were adult. Present. Um, I mean, she, they didn't expect me to do my own laundry, but they made sure I knew how to do it. Yeah. Cause like it helped. They taught me how to cook. Like they taught me how to survive on my own. So by the time I was 18, like moving out at 18, 
I think I could have done it. I would have been perfectly fine. Um, but I went to JUCO and they're like, there's no reason for you to move out now because your college is 15 minutes away. There's just save your money. I'm like, okay. So like they, when we moved, when I moved down there, it was like, I was on my own. Like they were there if I needed support, like if I couldn't afford rent that month because work was slow or whatever, yeah. um, they would help me out. But for the most part, I didn't really, I had it. It was, my truck was paid off. I had a, like I was this, oh, 2010, I guess, when I went there and I had a 99 Chevy Silverado 1500. It was paid off. I paid 6,000 for that. And I didn't have any bills outside of um, a cell phone and like rent and like groceries insurances but those were those were pretty cheap for just me so but, at least you were put together like you yeah financially responsible i guess would be the yeah be the term i would use yeah yeah because I, I dude i i was not my first like i mean even from coming out of like going to college and then all the way up to like my first three years in the army yeah it, it's it's a thing a lot of people aren't used to like yeah. or they don't learn it as much yeah so that's good that you had that yeah. like going for you like that's good yeah so you got down there you, you're trying to find this job. You're getting yeah, set so up in the apartment. I went, kind of went off on a wormhole there. No, I, uh, so I got a job at Olive Garden. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I started applying to everything. And that's where, that's, yeah. yeah, that's where we go to. I grew, I grew up doing all the construction, and I was an assistant manager at Hibbit Sports for a little while while I was at the junior college. And then when I moved down there, like with going to school full-time, living on my own, construction wasn't an option, and there wasn't a Hibbit there. So I was like, well – I started applying to whatever, whatever was available. And the first one that called me back was Olive Garden. They hired me to be a busser. And then I trained up to be a waiter and a bartender when I turned 21. Right. Um, and I kept that the whole year. Um, made Olive, a Gar- Olive Garden rules. Made rules, a killing. Olive Garden's the shit. Yeah. Dude, the, 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 the all you can eat, the never ending possible. Yes. Yeah. Man. You're just taking those home. Yeah, yeah. You just 100%. go in there like you get. That was my dinner. Like I yeah. didn't have to buy food because I just got it while I was at work. Yeah. You know, that and it's or, pasta, so you're held over yeah. good. It's not. It's yeah. not shitty. And then while you're working, you could you could snack on the breadsticks and the salad all you wanted, and <laughs> you, I mean you'd be full. So you could spend all your extra tip money on beer and alcohol. You Hell know? yeah. Um, but yeah, so I went on, and then on uh, December 10th. So I've been in school for like a few months. Five, I had a, months, I had a yeah. girlfriend, but nothing serious. Um, just one from back home, um, nothing serious. Um, went on December 10th, I was going to, I I closed down Olive Garden and I went to dirt cheap cause it's fun. Oh, I got got a 30 rack of, but, uh, PBRs. Yeah. uh, And I used to drink stag too. Oh, steak, taters and gravy. Yeah. I used to go in there with Budweiser, but everybody at the fraternity would steal your beer. Yeah. Because it's the good stuff. So nobody took the stag. So nobody would steal stag. That's (laughs) so I would drink the shit out of stag. Yeah. And then I would take PBRs, but I was walking in um, with a 30 rack on like this, the, the fraternity house was an off campus one, just this shitty old house in town. Yeah. And it had the side door and I was walking in and it was like, midnight probably and this girl and her friend were like running out the door and like we kind of bumped into each other well it was um my future wife michelle yeah kind of like we had like that moment where like we saw each other and it was like take my breath away. pretty much yeah like i look back to like um you ever see the Airbud world pup movie <laughs> no he, oh okay no. <laughs> well he first sees the girl and he's like there's like this girl singing lucky stars and stuff yeah and he's like just dumbfounded that was yeah. me um, I thought of Wayne's world when he's like 
Dreamweaver. Oh, 100 percent. Dreamweaver yeah. was blaring. Yeah. But so the way the fraternity house worked, they had like a basement under it, but you could only get to it from the outside, and that's oh, where they yeah, were headed. Yeah. And the basement was like a uh, kind of like a college a, basement, right? Where they it had was parties. A, it was stuff. a nightclub. Yeah, it yeah, was a yeah, bar, yeah. and it was like where all the freshmen went to hang out because yeah. it was like they were they were chasing girls. That's what the freshmen. Uh, fraternity the dudes, guys yeah. were doing we're chasing girls and that's where they were headed and i'm like well whatever so i went in to hang out with the older dudes because we would go up you ever play asshole the drinking game yes we would play asshole <laughs> religiously upstairs in the in like the kitchen and that's what we were doing it was either you were in a super smash brothers on 64 tournament or you were playing asshole so i was going in and uh, my buddy mike schmidt he was the president of the delta kai's like tall skinny like gumby looking dude real, real skinny guy <laughs> he was like you all right man because like i was dumbfounded by the girl i just saw oh yeah and i was like i don't know man and he's like well let's play so we played for a little bit and then it might probably like an hour they came back up to get more beer from us for free and then they turned and went back downstairs i'm like well i'm going so i went with them Hell like, yeah followed them down kind of yeah a little bit late but i so i came down the stairs and we had they had some old uh they're from Waffle House, like the the booths from like Waffle House, the old oh, ugly yellow ones. Yeah. They had like three of those in there, <laughs> but they were they had painted them red because the Delta Kaiser are golden red. So they got rid of the ugly yellow and painted them red. And why do all these frats get the most random shit, dude? It's, it's so cool it's though. De- it's so cool. It's degenerates, man. We yeah, do, we do the same yeah. shit now. We, we, yeah, that's we true. Are privates. Yeah, I got some wild fraternities shit. are literally military privates. That's mm-hmm. all they are. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so she, so I, I came down. And uh, I was sitting, I went and sat down by a couple of our friends at this, the freshman at the, one of those booths. And I was kind of like scoping the scene looking for her. And she had on like some leather pants and this black leather jacket. And I was like dumbfounded by the black leather jacket and like this black hair. Yeah. And a white scarf. Well, I wore. She was, had black hair back then? Yeah. She was a freak, <laughs> dude. She was a freak. Yeah. Still is a little bit, but not as much. <laughs> She's calmed down a little bit. I tamed her. But. <laughs> But she, uh, yeah, so I had, it was an ugly sweater party. So I had on some like ugly, nasty jeans and I had like this giant, I still have it. It's just, it's like a, it's like a Mexican shawl looking thing that you saw. Like, remember, uh, have you ever seen the outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood? Yeah. That yeah, sweater yeah, thing sweater, he wore. Yeah. It was one of those. <laughs> and I had this massive, um, like a big, uh, like a scarecrow straw sombrero hat. Yeah. And I had taken, it was my drinking hat. I drank with it every single time I drank. And I'd taken like the caps from beer the bottles. Bottle caps you clump And I would clump them all the way around yeah. it. And the whole thing was done. And I was starting to glue them on the actual thing. So you know what's like, the problem is like, that's not like a, like I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen that in so many places. Yeah, like, that was the- my hat. So I was sitting there, had my hat on and she came up. And uh, so there was a, there was a kid named, his name was Jordan Tingle. Um, but he was hitting on this girl. That's rough. Yeah, it was, it was rough. He was a good kid though, yeah. but he, the girl wanted his hat or wanted my hat. He's like, can I borrow your hat? She wants to wear it. And I'm like, yeah, man, cool. So I gave it to him and she was wearing it. Well, Michelle came up a little bit later and she's like, I want your hat. I'm like, okay. So I just right. took it All off right. her head and gave it to her <laughs> Yeah. and she put it on and went to walk away. I'm like, well, I want something of yours to make sure I get my freaking hat back. Cause I got a lot of time invested into that hat. <laughs> you know, like that hat's important. So she gave me her white scarf. So like we hit it off. Um, she went and kept dancing and then we started hanging out a little bit, ended up spending the entire evening together. Well, night, I guess. Cause by this time it was morning. 
This is a beautiful picture of you with the outlaw Josie Wales sweater on with a white scarf. Just like bleached white scarf. And her with a leather jacket on and a sombrero with a bunch of uh, crimped uh, uh, caps on. Yeah. This is. It was was eventful. Yeah. But so we hung out and um, just kind of, we finally went upstairs as the party started dying down and people left. And her and her friend ended up staying the night at the fraternity house. I was there. We basically just hung out in the living room all night. And it was basically an all-nighter. And then yeah. I very drunkily drove them to the the dorms. I want to call them barracks, but the dorms. Yeah, every time. The next yeah. morning en route to my apartment so I could go pass out before I went to work the next day. And um, Oh, you had work the next yeah, day. Yeah, I had to work too. the next day. I worked almost every yeah. day because I was, I was greedy and I wanted the money. It's crazy you can recover like that, though, when you're younger. Like, yeah. the first hour of work sucks, yeah. but then you're like, I'll get it. I don't think I had a liver. Like, I think I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I had destroyed my liver to where it didn't really matter anymore. It just passed through. Yeah. It was just like, it, you, basically, you could drink it sitting on the toilet. It was right. coming out within seconds. It, <laughs> it's kind of a gross visual, but it's how yeah. it was. If you've been to college or in the Army, yeah. you understand it. Um, but yeah, so I dropped them off. I got her number and then never called her. She she found out. I was like, I thought she was there. She didn't go to SEMO. She was from... St. Louis, oh, okay. just visiting her friend. Yeah. I'm like, well, this isn't going to work out. She's never going to be back. Um, so she left. We never talked again for a while. And then uh, I was back home. I think it was for Easter. It was in March. And I reached out to her. I was sitting at home. Uh, my mom and dad were at work. And I was like just kind of scrolling through my phone. Yeah. And I saw her number. And I just shot her a text. I'm like, hey, do you remember me? And I got was single at this time. Me and the other girl had broke up. Um, so I hit her up and she was like, kind of like playing like she didn't, but she, she did. Yeah. And she got around to it. And I was like, well, I'm in town if you want to hang out. So we had a real classy date. We went to Taco Bell and she got a cheese roll up. Like remember the little cheese roll up. Yeah. Yeah. Had. We get them for the kids. And I crushed <laughs> the quesadillas cause I mean, yes. they're great. Oh yeah. Um, and then we just kind of drove around Eureka a little bit. Um, oh, okay. Because I was like, we did Eureka because it was like she was in. It was kind of middle. Middle of the road. Yeah. yeah. So like where I'm at to where she's at, Eureka was like 25 minutes for each of us. So we just met there. What, she What what town did she live in? What was it? She, her, she's been all over. She lived all over St. Yeah. Louis. But they're kind of forever home, I guess you'd call it, is in Baldwin or Wildwood oh, okay. area. Okay, okay, okay. Um, it's on top of the hill above Chesterfield. Yeah. But um, it was like a midway point. Just, she cut across 109 and I cut across W and we just met at the Taco Bell in Eureka. Um, and we hung out all day that day and had a great time. It was like, we've kind of, I mean, didn't speak for months, like four, four months almost. And then picked up right where we left off. And, um, asked her if, basically asked her like what she wanted to do. Like, how do, like, how do we want to go about this? And she's like, let's give it a shot. So we did. And here we are. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was in 2010. That's awesome. So that's been a minute. Thirteen years ago, man. Yeah, a long time. God damn. Thirteen years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's cool. been a while. That's a cool like you don't hear a lot of great like origin stories anymore mm-hmm. of like marriages. So that's cool to hear. Yeah. That you were like that. Um what uh so that brings us kind of to the next jumping off point. Um, what brought you to the army? Um, I so I went to Missouri Baptist, um, did the soccer thing, uh, went through two a days of summers through the summer for like almost two months. And, um, whenever the season came, I really wasn't 
passionate about what I was going to school for anymore. I kind of lost interest. Yeah. I really wasn't feeling MoBAP, um, Missouri Baptist. I wasn't feeling MoBAP anymore. Um, I it just didn't feel right. And so the season starts and they st- were starting like all of us kids that they put on scholarship. Um, a bunch of us that went through the two a days, they weren't even playing us and they were playing kids from like the basketball team who were on basketball scholarships that weren't any what? good and we were losing games. Yeah. So it like, I'm, I'm a really bad sore loser and it was, right. it was pissing me off basically yeah. that he would like the coach wouldn't even put us in and they had a losing record every year. Like if you look back from that era, like their, their team was terrible. Yeah. Um, but I was like, cool, I'm on a scholarship, so I'll do it. I don't care if the team's bad or not. But I, I got pissed and I like walked off a field and was like, take your, take your whole thing and shove it. Yeah. It was like, I just killed myself for two months for nothing. Yeah. Um, you're not even playing us now and we're just getting smoked, but you're playing kids who didn't even go through two a days. Um, so I kind of threw a hissy fit and I walked off the field. What was I, the, what was the coach's deal? Like what, what um, did you ever learn? Like what? Why I don't he, know. That's, yeah. I, I mean, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't, I don't really know. He, that does, like that doesn't even sound yeah coachish you know like yeah what? it wasn't it wasn't good it was it's it felt like a real political thing um a lot of the kids that they were playing were from like kids from other countries that were recruited in oh okay for sports so maybe it, they thought they were gonna do solid or something yeah and, well that and like they, they like they were trying to help them out because yeah the coach yeah was from another country too mm. um so I I don't know I don't really know what it was but it just it just didn't sit me right, and a whole bunch of us quit, like, right there on the spot because it was, like, I felt like I was there to fill a void of, like, making the team diverse. It's, yeah. It's kind of how it felt. Yeah. And it was just, like, we killed ourselves for two months mm-hmm. through two-a-days when it was 100 degrees outside, and then you're not even going to utilize us when we're getting our butts kicked. Yeah. To, to change something that's not working. Yeah. Um, this is, like, 2013 or so, right? Or this would have no, been late 2000. Yeah, it was 2011. Yeah. I finished the year at SEMO for 10, and then I went up there for 2011. So I walked off pretty fast and quit. Totally dropped out of school before I had to pay the money back just because I wasn't – I was kind of done with school. Like, I was over – like, I feel like I had played soccer so long at a competitive level that I was almost burned out. So, yeah. like, it was like – it's it built up and spearheaded and then like i just kind of lost it on the field at the end of the game like the game was over we got destroyed like normal and i just quit i was done and like i walked off so i got a job doing landscaping for like a year i'm like i'm just gonna take a year off not work or not go to school and figure out what i want to do and she stayed with me um we were kept dating and then i was doing landscaping and like working for a tree service wasn't making a lot of money and I had then applied it like I applied at um quite a few places but I had my my big claim to fame was I was trying to get into like AT&T as one of their people who go through and like install stuff like install the fibers oh, yeah, and yeah 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 um for like the cell services and like internet services cuz in St. Louis at the time it was a pretty good job um it would have been secure enough for what I needed and it, like yeah. at that level I was young that I could have climbed a tier and maybe worked up to something. Mm-hmm. Um my mother-in-law had worked for Southwestern Bell and retired from there which is Southwestern Bell. Now AT&T. Yeah, it's AT&T, yeah. Um so I was You know like, that well, used to be one of the that was like the if it wasn't the largest it was one of the largest in the country like Yeah. and now it's gone. It's, like it was people huge. don't remember that. Yeah. yeah. Like of um it, lo- a, it a looked few, like a Taco Bell logo yeah, kind of. A yeah. few of them retired from there within her family. I was like, "Well, it's 
you know, it's, it's good enough. I'll do that. Well, yeah. I was impatient. It took them months to do the hiring thing. And then winter hit landscaping slows down in the winter. We did snow removal, but we didn't get a lot of snow. Yeah. Um, so we weren't, I was sitting and wasn't working and I had always felt, I had always felt a calling to serve in the army. Um, I, a part of me at one time felt like almost every male should do at least three, but now I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to, I had a cousin who was in, he did eight years. He was like, don't join, don't join. He's like, you're going to hate it. Yeah. Um, but I did, I was kind of like, I don't want to say I hit rock bottom in life, but I felt like it was the, a step that would, it was a consistent paycheck it could test me on what I wasn't sure about. So I went and I went and talked to the Marines first. Um, they didn't have, I mean, there was, I mean, I was kind of like, yeah, let's go join the Marines. You know, because my cousin was like, don't join the army. So I'll do the Marines. So I went and talked to them, um, got their spiel. Then I went and talked to the army guys. And then I waited like a week. And then I was like having a bad day for some reason. And I got kind of drunk. And then I went down there again. And I went to go sign up for the Marines, but they weren't there. They were like out of the office for the day. Yeah. It's like, screw it. So I went down and I just enlisted, Mm -hmm. um, signed up for an 18 x-ray contract. No, I actually, when I went the the recruiter, I was going to be a, a 68 whiskey, a combat medic. Oh, okay. Um, that's was my initial, what I wanted to be what the recruiter did and waited a couple months, did like three months of their little train up, whatever they do. Um, there was a, there was a, I don't remember the kid's name, but I called him Dodson because he was like Dodson from Major Pain. He's like super gung ho. Yeah, was leading yeah, PT yeah. every Thursday. We were doing Say this, yes, and like it was like, yeah, I wasn't I was in good shape because of soccer. So, like the PT was simple. Um, main thing I had to get used to was the rucking because I never rucked. Um, they had you doing all that for yeah, the prep every, every Thursday. Wow, it wasn't it wasn't a lot, but like, um, we would just. Yeah, we would every Thursday we would go work out together yeah. and do like PT. So like when we went to when I went to basic, like the whole army PT prep drills and stuff, I kind of already knew them. Yeah. To to your point, I just wanted to point out because um, I wanted to take a break for a second, but like I I feel you on the not knowing thing, and then you always like felt like you had a sense of, like uh, me. I went to college for two year. Well. Mm-hmm. I went to Missouri State for a year, didn't pan out. I got expelled and everything. And then my second year, I went to Ozark Technical Community College, mm-hmm. where I still just, I at that point, I was trying to work to cover my bills because I was living in a house and I I couldn't keep up. And then my third year, all I did was work. Like I worked at Pan Express for a year, and um, I tried like get my grades up and stuff, and I couldn't. But it, I moved home for a while. I was like, let me get back and reset. Like, I got to figure myself. I was drinking a fuck ton. I was around some wild people that were either extremely successful or extremely, like, down in the dumps. And I'm like, I got to figure something out. So I move home. I got, like, four different jobs that were, like, either I worked at Buffalo Wild Wings and then I worked at Walmart Distribution, which was, like, one of the hardest jobs I ever had because they're very demanding there. And then I worked at Quaker Windows up here, which is also very demanding and not, uh, I guess at an early age, you learn about purpose and you're like, I, I want something that means something, not just go through the motions. Cause you see older people that are like, 
are there and you're like, you hate your life. Like, I don't want to be that when I'm 40, 50 years old. Absolutely. So like, then I'm like, all my buddies, I had two buddies, one in the Navy, one in the army that kept telling me, no, don't join. Like, it's not as fun. I'm like, the paycheck seems really solid. Like I've never had a stable paycheck. Uh, I can actually try and get myself going there, all this stuff. And then I, I literally just went to recruiter, took tests. I was going to be a linguist, but I had a, I had terrible credit at that point. <laughs> I had really bad credit, so they couldn't pass me on my security clearance. So they were like, it's either infantry, um, watercraft operator, or Seaburn. And for some reason, I didn't pick watercraft operator, and I picked Seaburn, but like... Um, I just, I feel that where you're like, man, I'm kind of going nowhere at this point. I got to get that motivated. And I think that's a good part about the army for better or worse. Now that where we're at, like at that initial thing, you did realize, oh, I can't, I can't do something. I'm going to figure this out. So, yeah. um, I want to jump back into your contract and stuff and ha- wh- how that road took, uh, we'll be, we'll just take a quick break and then okay. we'll come right back. Sounds good. Hey guys, another person I want to talk about before we start the show is Eric Vierhoff, who runs a really awesome business called Sun Stoppers out of Columbia, Missouri. If you're driving down the road and that sun's hitting your eyes like crazy and you're thinking, damn, I got to get some shades going on, look no further than Sun Stoppers, where they do everything from auto, home, and commercial window tinting to ceramic coating and detail. They even offer discounts for military, EMTs, firefighters, nurses, doctors, and teachers. This is this is awesome that they're out there supporting their community like that. For people that are given so much, they're giving a whole lot back. Okay. They're uh, they're located up there in Columbia, 1313 Grand Avenue, Suite B. They're open 8 to 5 Monday through Friday. Okay, Eric, I've known him for years. Great dude, easy to work with. Okay, go there for all that tinto or that <laughs> that tinting needs from auto to home and commercial. All right, thank you guys so much. And we're back. All right, with me again, it's Ben and Cody. We're talking about um, he kind of got us up to the point where he was joining the army. Um, Cody, let's just talk about that. Like you, you, so you went to the recruiter, you, you were talking about the Marine wasn't even there. So he's just, I'm going army and he signed you up. Yeah. So, um, sign, he got, did the paperwork, did the little weekly training with them. And then I think I was like three or four months. I had to wait before I actually went to maps. And when I shipped, um, went, went up through St. Louis maps, uh, Stayed a night in a hotel. Nice, nice. Yes, yeah, hotel. The, best. the Everybody, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. That Got thing the, was. Did you get the room, the the dinner or whatever? Oh yeah. It yeah. was like the, the the best part of the army. Yes. The yes. Best part of the army. Like, this is uh, great. It was great. So then the next morning, um, they shuttled us over to Maps. Did the whole duck walk. Did all that stuff. And when I went into, I guess like the admin portion, and they were doing documents, there was this dude, and they were like, he was talking to me, like doing. It was for my clearance. And he oh, was yeah. like, um, you don't seem like you're gung-ho about being a medic. And at that time, I wasn't, which I should have been, because it would have been a cool, a, a good gig. But yeah. I wasn't. I wanted to be an infantry guy. I don't know why, but I did. And he was like, well, what about 18 X-ray? He's like, I can't get you infantry, but I can get you that. I'm like, well, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's Green Berets. He's like, you go through, automatically walk into the the um, OCS training. Or not OCS, the uh, 
selection and try to be a green beret. Yeah. Um, I was like, right on. I'm like, what happens if I fail? He's like, well, you'll be an infantry guy. He's like, you have to go to infantry first. I'm like, well, cool. So either way I get kind of what I want. And then if it's successful, it's a super high speed route. Yeah. Um, so I jumped on that and I went to basic, um, went to OSIT for infantry and then followed on to airborne, um, where I got dropped and then lost the 18 extra contract and became an infantryman. Yeah. You told me about that whole trip with the, the airborne stuff. Yeah. Getting, getting dropped and getting I, signed up like I, that. I never told you that I, I went to airborne school and got dropped too before, really? before I went my second time. I, um, I was a specialist. I reenlisted for it, um, for f- four or five years or whatever. And I had airborne school. Um, and then I was going to come back clear and go to Italy. Right. And it was also right when I met Danielle Yeah, and we were like, she's like, you're not going to stay with me. I go, yeah, I am. Like, she's like, Ben, you're going to Italy. Like, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. Just shut the fuck up. So I go and I, I 41 clubbed it. And at first I always thought like, I was like, you know, that's just something people say, but I got there and true to form. Like, I mean, back then it was like, I'm 300 people were going through and about 50 or so 50, 60 failed the PT test and everybody was getting like 41 and you're like, how the fuck? Like, Mm -hmm. and it was, I saw, I saw a master sergeant who failed scream at him. Like, and you just, you kind of realize at a certain point, like, Oh, okay. This is this is just how it is. Like, it's it's whatever. But um, yeah, I think the airborne school is kind of weird, like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's definitely was. Um, they got a lot of people when I was there for the forty one, and then they were dropping like flies during the rest of the time, um, and they basically wiped out pretty much all the eighteen X rays um, throughout that course. And when we when we all failed out, they for whatever reason they would the document we signed basically said in a way that we volunteered to withdraw or to drop. Yeah. And to go back, it was like a 07 or approval, I think. I think it's because it, on paper it looks like you it decided looks, to quit. It looks qu- like it, we wanted yeah. to quit. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that – Did that break your spirits pretty bad? Like the um, – Yes and no because I was so new in the Army. Like we kind of got treated like crap because we were fresh out of basic. Yeah. Or OSIT. Like we were brand new and like we were doing – like everybody else was just there for school and we were doing like CQ. We were doing staff duty. Like yeah. everybody that I went to OSIT with, we were doing like yard work. Like we were doing all the details on top of being at the school. While everybody else would like come back from training and then they would leave and go to subway and go get whatever they wanted yeah. and leave. And we were, we were like a, a, like the, the, the schoolhouse detail. Yeah. That's kind of how it was, which I was all the privates, like all the fresh privates, which it's kind of like, I get it, but I don't at the same time because like you're there for a purpose and there's enough holdovers and hold unders around places that that doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Um, but I know whenever we left that entire platoon of, um, black hats, which were the instruct the instructors yeah. for airborne, um, got relieved because of how many they dropped from that, that, that course. Um, but I don't think it really, I kind of got what I wanted in being an infantry guy um, looking back now, I definitely wish I would have gotten through at least to go to selection to see if I could even do that. Yeah. Um, do I think I would have made it through? Probably not. Um, I think going to selection, um, I know you've worked with the, the group guys, um, the green berets, and I've been attached to them overseas. And I don't think, I don't think going into that environment, 
right out of AIT no. is the right option. And um, young there's kids no, like that. Yeah, you know? young. Like I was, I mean, we were all a little older because they wanted college or they wanted, you had to be a certain age or something. Um, but we were all like, I think almost all of us was 21 that, that went through. But we were like, I was, I thought I was mature at the time, but I wasn't. I mean, I was still a child. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't think I would have made it. And I don't think I would have physically, men- mentally been prepared for it. Um, I'll never know, but I don't, I don't think I would have made it through anyway. I think, I think where you're at, you know, after dealing with what you've dealt with through the army, you realize your mental, your mental fortitude and stuff yeah. is you thought it was strong back then, but like now you're like, I w- I'm nowhere in, yeah. I was, I was a child. Yeah. I was, I was so, so not where I needed to be. Absolutely. Like I don't, but then, so well, yeah, I don't think I would have made it through. Um, it would have been a cool experience, but that's all it really would have been. Yeah. Um, I could have went back later, but I just having to go, I just never had the hunger to do it again, I guess. Um, for multiple reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into, but, uh, yeah. So I, I was, got dropped basically was a holdover. So then I was doing that and, um, got to go work the drop zone one day instead of cutting grass. And I volunteered to do that every day because it was better than cutting grass. Um, and then finally shipped out, um, in October. So I got dropped in beginning of September and then I left, I got, finally got a orders and report date and I went to Fort drum, New York, uh, and reported on October 10th of 2012. I didn't know that was your first spot. Yep. Fort drum was my first place. Yeah. On regular line company, regular line platoon. Yeah. It was in a Bravo company, battle company, one, three, two infantry. Yeah. How was it up there? Um, I loved it. Let me, sorry. Let me jump back real quick. Where were you and your wife at this point? Um, we, so yeah. So while I was in OSIT and, uh, I guess like, um, we weren't married yet. We were dating. Mm. Um, I was in basic and I wasn't getting letters from her. Thought, I thought she, I kind of thought it was over. was expecting the dear John finally got one. I think I was in like, like seven or eight weeks in to basic. And she told me she was pregnant. Um, so that's how I found out I was going to be a dad. Yeah. Um, and we had talked about like the kids and everything and like a future. We'd only been dating for like a year. So it was kind of like probably in the, in the far off, um, or a little later, but we weren't being excessively careful about stopping it. Right. Well, here we are. Um, it happened. Um, so they came down, um, for graduation from, AIT, so like when we graduated OSIT, did the turning blue, and then we immediately shipped to Airborne, and then um, all that happened with Airborne. So when I got to Drum, um, we got a four-day weekend over, I don't really know what for, but on November 5th of 2012, so I reported October 10th, um, went into a, a barracks room didn't have anything because I like I went to Fort Benning I went <laughs> yeah, to Fort yeah, Benning yeah. it's that empty ass barracks room yeah so Nothing. I went to Fort Benning in um June 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 4th I went to Benning for a for OSIT and then next thing you know December I'm showing up to upstate New York so summertime Georgia to wintertime upstate New York 30 miles from Canada <laughs> I didn't Nightmare. have I didn't have shit Nightmare. so like, I get there and like I was like looking at the weather. I'd never heard of New York. They're like, you're going to Fort Drum, New York. And like, I'm not a city person. I don't really care for cities. And I was like, shit. 
So I was like, started Googling, like looking for New York and New York City or Fort Drum in New York City. And I couldn't find it. I'm like, well, what the hell? So I Googled Fort Drum, found out it's nowhere near New York City. Yeah. Um, Way upstate. And the temperature was like 22 degrees outside. And yeah. it, was, it was like October. I'm like, holy crap. So I bought a hoodie from the PX of Jordan at Fort Benning. <laughs> and that's all I took. So I had like some jeans, some civilian clothes that I wore to uh, OSIT when I first left. And then a hoodie. And I got up there and... Um, I got got to the base, and then um, went into got my little barracks room, and then met my team leader the next day, and then when I didn't I didn't have much because like we were planning on getting married because of the she was pregnant, you know, like we had already talked like well we might as well go ahead and do it, um, so I was basically waiting on a day to do it, and uh, yeah. we got a four day on it was on November fifth. I don't really know why we had a four day, but I told her I called her like hey we got a four day if you can get up here. So her dad like bought a ticket on the fly Yeah, and flew her up. We on a, on a Thursday night, Friday morning, we went and did like the, um, the meet and greet with the courthouse lady. Cause you had to wait 24 hours from the minute you filed to the minute you said, I do. Oh, so we did it on the, did that on Friday. Or we, we might've did that Thursday. I don't really remember, but then we did that and then tied the knot the next day. Yeah. And then hung out in a hotel room. She's very pregnant at this point. Yeah, yeah. She's like, uh, <laughs> like six and a half months pregnant, very seven months pregnant. And then so November 5th, we got married. And then we did um, a Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, their, uh, chili, their chili cheese dip. Yeah. Got two of those and a massive pizza from Cam's Pizza. Um, these things are... Like, you know, like GWs and TKs. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's, it's, it's one big, of those. It's bigger than that. Yeah. Jesus. It's huge. Um, we got one of those and that was our, that was our uh, honeymoon. Um, and then she flew back home on uh, Monday and then I got Christmas leave. So we just did some training, whatever, with the unit. Got a, I got a, I lived in a little hotel cause I had to clear out of the barracks. So I lived in a hotel waiting on an apartment on base and finally got that. So I then moved in there. And I was sleeping in my sleep system from the army in there because I didn't have oh my god didn't have a bed or anything yeah yeah um, living pretty pretty bare minimum and then um, when we got Christmas leave I drove had bought a truck drove home got her loaded all of our stuff up got a bunch of things donated from family members like here you know things we don't need take it yeah and loaded up a U-Haul and I moved her back up after the first of the year and she was. About seven and a half, eight months pregnant, and that was that, that was that. Man, um, stopped at Hooters in Dayton, Ohio, Hell on yeah. the way up because she was tired. So we got a room, and Hooters was the only thing open. So we went there, got treated like kings because she was very pregnant, and the Hooters <laughs> girls were like treating her like a saint. And then um, got to New York the next day. And, um, what a wild start! Yeah, it was rough, man. Yeah, I'm it, sure. it, it was I'm it was sure. rough. Uh, felt bad for her. She was a trooper, but yeah, we um, ended up being a. He had a cleft lip when he was born. Oh, okay. so he was born on February 24th, and because of that, and she had a heart issue um, at the time. Uh, sinus tachycardia runs in her family, and her dad's got AFib, but okay. she had sinus tachycardia, so she would like her heart will like skyrocket, 
doing like minimal at the time would skyrocket doing like minimal activity. Yeah. So like climbing the stairs, like yours or eyes will be at like 80 beats per minute or something or 90, yeah. maybe hers would be at like 200. Oh, wow. So they were worried about her in labor. Yeah. Their hearts. Yeah. They wanted to monitor her. Well, the, the hospital in Watertown right outside Fort drum was so small and it was under construction. They didn't have the setup to monitor her while she was in labor for what they wanted. So we had to drive to Syracuse, oh, which is like it's an, a, hour, it's an hour, it's, it's an hour and some change down 81. Um, which isn't a big deal, but on your first kid, it was scary. But the, the big factor was it was in February, which in that area is where they get the whiteout snows oh, through the Tug yeah. Hill region that come off of Lake Erie. So I was worried about that. So luckily, they wanted it to be so controlled and knew we were traveling, they decided an inducement date. So I went down the day prior. We were going to induce her on the 23rd. But we went down, got her into the hospital. And then before they started doing the induction, they were like, hey, there's other people who are like in labor that are yeah. like starting to go and we don't have enough room. So we got to move you guys out because you're not even ready to go yet. We're like, okay. So we left. And I'm like, well, it was snowing. I'm like, I'm not driving all the way back up there. Yeah. So I went and got a real classy room at the Red Roof Inn. Ooh. And um, in Mattydale, <laughs> which is just like one exit north of Syracuse. And then um, we got some good food fed her gave her some ice cream and then we ended on a phone call the next day and we went in and then they went in i think we went in at like eight o'clock in the morning and they started inducing her and we had him that day oh, okay um everything was good he just had his luckily it was just a little cleft lip yeah um no pilot issues no no nasal we got really lucky with it and uh he had surgery at like i think he was like six weeks old they did what surgery do they do so there was luckily we got we we got really lucky with a lot of it because Syracuse um, has at the time his name was Sherard Tatum but he was arguably at the time was like the best um, I think it's maxiofacial surgery but a plastic surgeon for oh, clef, for cleft lips for cleft lips in yeah. the country okay and he was top something in the world um, and he was covered by Tricare so all right we got to go down there and do that um, I was on CQ when he had surgery. But because they would only allow one in there anyway, yeah. um, so she took him. But they did that, and uh, just basically like they basically cut it and then like pulled it together and sewed his lip back. And if you if you, if you look at him, you can kind of see a scar. Oh, okay. But um, just did that, and then the worst part about it was he had to have his arm splinted so he wouldn't touch his face. Oh, uh, for a while. And as a six week old, that's kind of that's rough. That's rough. Um, so he was doing that and we had to find special, he couldn't latch like breastfeeding was hard. Yeah. We had to have special ways to feed him. Um, and it was a chore. And then what, two months after that, he was, his arms were still splinted cause they, he had to stay splinted for three months, I think. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't interfere with any stitches and healing. And then, so he was born in February and then I deployed in April. I was wondering, I was going to ask you, I was like, now how quick did the deployment yeah, come? End of, Mar end of, damn, Mar end of March and April. I so you, did you know pretty much or was it a spring on? No, I knew. Okay. Um, we knew, we weren't sure about numbers if I was going to get the go. Cause yeah. I was kind of like, as a new private, I was kind of on the chopping block. And then as with him, I was kind of on the chopping block. This is like 2012, 2013. This right? was 2013. Yeah, so it's still going a bit. Yeah, like the war. Yeah. Um. So we went to. I ended up going. Um. I was in 
third platoon and battle company one three two um third tune bunch of degenerates i love that platoon um but we left it was like the end of march early april and we went to um we were in wardak on a little bitty cop in afghanistan it was uh called sultan keel um it was basically it was along uh the msr1 through it connected ghazni to um uh, what is it? Kabul, I guess it was, it, it, it ran north it ran and south. south. Yeah. Ran north and south through, through north the Wardak area. And, um, we were, it's on, it's on like the South, Southeast side or something or more East side. Yeah. It's, it's kind of Northeast. It's like the base of the, the, the Southern tip of the mountains in Northern Afghanistan. Okay. Um, and we were on basically this big Ridge. The cop was on one Ridge and then there was like this huge gorge. Uh, we called it just a, this massive wadi, and then there was a cliff, and then you could go around the backside of it. And we had a little op that you'd go up there for like two weeks at a time or a week at a time. Yeah, and do like your op shifts up there of with like your squad, and like like you'd either platoon sergeant or pl would go, and then like one or two squads would go up, while the rest of the company was down on the cop. Yeah, it was basically uh, a lot of route clearances because um, at that time we were retrograde retrograding. Um, whatever base was up north i don't remember what it was um they were retrograding that one and moving stuff south to ghazni so we had the big um we had to keep that whole area clear of ied so we did a lot of route clearances with some some national guard uh engineer units that had all the the ied to feed all the, the all trucks the, all the toys and shit all the yeah. toys um so are you are you dismounted at this point or are you we we you mounted so light? we were we were mounted light so we had we had the Matt V's and we had Max Bros. We had a, okay. we had two trucks or four trucks per company. Basically, each squad had a truck, so we would do um, just your route clearance patrol. You'd put the trucks out there on the line, and then you'd have like a couple of the engineer trucks to be in the front. They were the ones looking yeah, for stuff. They got the rollers and shit. Yep. They're checking for it all. Line rollers, and then they had the mm-hmm. the thing that I think I don't even know what they're called. But they would go out and hook stuff if they found yeah. wires. Yeah, yeah. But we did like I called it the reverse flying V. So we would kick out dismounts we would dismount and walk. We had like inner teams and outer teams. So the inner teams would walk like five to 15 yards off of the road. Yeah. Looking for, looking com- for, looking shit, for right? command wires and like stuff like that going under the, under the road. And then the outer teams were farther in front of them and like 50 to a hundred yards off the road. Yeah. And we were looking for like long running, stuff or like looking basically for like trigger men yeah um is what we would do and uh i got moved to i deployed as a saw gunner so i was like a, a squad machine uh the squad assault weapon uh automatic weapon i had a 249 and then when i got over there they're like you're gonna be the rto i was like oh, awesome geez. good thing i trained for this yeah i uh, trained up for that and they got over there and knew nothing about radios and all of a sudden i had an skl <laughs> and i was of course to, they gave yeah it's always funny because it's like the skl they're like you always hear like, yeah, your your comm guy is gonna fill it all, and the comm guy's like, nah, figure it out. Here's SKL, yeah. figure it out, dude. Yeah. So we had, yeah, exactly. And I had no clue what they were talking about. So like me and the FO, like he became my best friend. We're like, well, let's go figure this out. Yeah. So we went up there, and our our uh, the twenty five uniform that was attached to our company, his name was Moda, uh, Bavin Moda. Uh, he was a a freaking commo guru, and oh, we we're good. like, I'm like Moda, I know nothing. Teach me. And he was like, it's really simple. And he was like, going through this shit, I'm like, I have no clue what you just did. Yeah. But um, we learned, um, figured it out, and got through it. So I was always 
got to go on all the patrols, got to be typically the LT always wanted to be on the outer one looking for the trigger guy. So I was always with him. Um, he's felt like he had the most command and control there on the outer, on the outer sector. Cause like the platoon sergeant would be in with the trucks Oh, okay, and then okay. we would be dismounted. So okay. I was always got to do a lot of walking. Right. Um, it was cool. It was a rush. Yeah. Um, how long was that deployment? Uh, nine, nine mm. months. It, it ran somewhat smooth or yeah it was pretty smooth um it, at that time the war was kind of dying down yeah like there was some stuff but a lot of it was like it felt like all of mine felt like it was super you're trying to win hearts and minds and you're trying not to get into fights unless the fight comes to you first yeah um we weren't really out initiating um we did a couple things we did some stuff with there was a an oda well the sf group there was a, a, a some group guys that were operating there, and then when they would come in, so right outside of Sultan Kiel, there was a little town um, that was just Sultan Kiel, which is why the cop was Sultan Kiel. But right up the highway a little bit, there was a town, um, I believe it was called Salar or S Sinjar, but there was it was a pretty there was a bunch of bad dudes that lived there. Yeah, um, a lot of cacheing, a lot of um, HME was made there, so the ODA guys would go raid that. And when they did, they would contact us and let us know they were coming. And they typically requested a platoon or two to kind of like one for QRF and one to kind of help court on the city Yeah. to like look for squirters and like kind of give them like a bird's eye view of stuff so they could maneuver. If yeah. Needed. They're just wanting more coverage. Yeah. Just yeah. to help them out. Cause I mean, you know, you, you know how they are. They run pretty minimal. Right. Um, and they can't, Really. Yeah, they probably had a team, one team, maybe two teams, like, yeah. running through it, running through so the city. we would go help them, and, like, that was the main stuff that would go off. And then, like, other than that, it was always kind of like you were wondering if the – a lot we would do a lot with ANA, the Afghan Army, yeah. and then <laughs> um, their, their police force. So, like, you'd be patrolling, and then they start shooting at you. So, you're like, you can't shoot back yeah, because they're them. So, then you're just trying to, like, get, you know, get them to see who they're shooting I, at. How do you – I have my own opinions, but how do you feel about them? Like the ANA and the, their commandos yeah. were awesome. Yeah. I loved working with their commandos and depending on, depending on which group you got, which like which unit of them you are working with and who their leaders were, who was like in charge of them. Yeah. Some were pretty good and some were there just for a paycheck and a status. Yeah. Um, met some really good ones. Um, met some not so good ones. Like there's some that I would trust. I would say with my life, probably not, but they, they were over there at the time. They were trustworthy enough. And then there were some that was just like, there's no way I would turn my back on you. Yeah. I um, always hear these stories about them running away or not yeah. doing their job and stuff. Yeah. And like, I personally, I didn't, you know, I never had the type of shit you went through. I never had to do combat patrols or any of that type of shit, but I had to deal with the ones working in garrison with us. Yeah. And even at that time, some of them, you're just like, dude, you are sketchy as fuck and you don't seem like honorable at all. So yeah. like, I, I hate that because I'm not trying to stereotype or generalize. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like they had no integrity for their country. Yeah. That's all. Like, yeah. That they didn't, they were there. It was all about money. Like whatever fed their families is what yeah. mattered. Well then you, but it, it, then if you dig deeper into the history of it, you're like, well, these guys, the, um, you know, really the Taliban or um, what's the other one? It's Taliban and um, uh, ISIS. No, before ISIS, because Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda. So Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is really the 
the bad one because they work off of religion, right? Yep. They're not Taliban is what what Bin Laden worked for. Yep. It was a terrorist group through and through. Al Qaeda was a religious group that thought they were right in commanding the country. Mm-hmm. So like they're like you're going to follow these laws cuz it's by God or we're going to kill your family mm-hmm. or you can like live with us and we'll give you bread and stuff. Like I mean obviously like America if it went the same way like if it was like Christian groups that took over and were like, "Hey, if you just believe in God, like, and we'll feed your family," a lot of people are probably going to go with it. Like, they may not, it may not sit well, but they're feeding your family and they're going to kill you otherwise. So it's like that's really hard to like fight, you know? Yeah, that's why they'll they'll we're going down such a. I don't mean to dive down that rabbit hole. Good. It's just like it, it's so hard to fight a war on a belief system like you people people that are believing in such a divine right to them, it's so hard to change the minds of. Yeah. And it's so hard to like change the structure of the people who like all all the Americans coming over, they're not working off a belief system. They're working off of what's called democracy mm-hmm. and they think that's the almighty power. Yeah. And it's it's very hard to push. Yeah. And it's like they're a lot of their little like their their units were like a uh uh, we had a the the PL I had. He was like, it's like working with like a three headed snake. He goes, you'll have like what you think is the main leader. He goes, they'll, and then next thing you know, they like mutiny against the guy, or they just they just straight up fucking kill him. Yeah. And then tomorrow they're duking it out about who's leading it, and then they pick somebody, and then they have totally different ideas on how they want to operate. It's like every day was a a learning. There was always a learning curve. Yeah. Trying to figure out like which way they were going to go, who was in charge, um, what they even stood for. So at times it felt like they didn't stand for anything. Yeah. Cause like those guys would like, we had, we had an interpreter, like his, his cousin killed his dad over a family farm that he put in leave, went home, killed his, his cousin, got the farm back and then came back to keep working. It's like, you'll kill your own freaking family over a farm or yeah. a, a piece of, a piece of Afghan dirt. Like, good Lord, dude. Um, so it was just like, what do you think they would do to us if like given the time? Um, and it was like, you, you had, you like, we had to work with them and had to trust them, which was fine. Like I met some, like some of them are really cool dudes. Yeah. Like some of our interpreters were like awesome. Yeah. Amazing, amazing men. Um, but you would, in any given day, like one day they're your best friend. And if you say something or do something that disrespects them and you could do it like, Un, like unconsciously not even knowing that it's disrespectful to them. Next thing you know, you're like, you're their, you're like enemy number one. Yeah. And like, they're out to get you. So it's like, you were, you were always on end and like we were, we, we worked with them daily um, in some way, shape or form. So it was, it was an interesting thing. Um, that was your first appointment though. That was my first one. Yeah. And um, did you have a lot of downtime or not really? Um, you were always on, you were either always in a tower as the RTO, I got the, I got the privilege of being in the talk, so I was always in a heated tent. So I got kind of lucky. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Yeah. I, I dodged some. I, I dodged some. I got pretty lucky on that deployment, um, compared to my um, all, all my friends that I was with. But um, yeah, we had we would. I wouldn't say it was downtime. Like you were always, you were either you were always on QRF, or you were on mission platoon. So you'd be the one running the missions that week the route clearance patrols or whatever, or you were force pro. So you'd be in the towers or at the OP. Yeah. And then the next week you'd be mission. So you're the one running 
the missions and going out and doing whatever. If the, if the SF guys needed support, you'd support them. If they were doing a route clearance patrol, you would do that. If we had to go do a KLE or go somewhere, you would do that. Yeah. And then there was always a QRF. So there was always somebody ready to rock and roll in 10 minutes. So you were always on standby. So like downtime was, we kind of considered downtime what it's like the force pro. So like if you were in the towers or in the fighting positions or at the OP, it was like shift work. So that was yeah, your downtime. Yeah. So you would go do like an eight to 12 hour shift in a tower. And then you were off for the rest of the day. Right. You go to the gym, you do whatever, do whatever you need to. Um, you weren't on standby. You were just waiting for your shift. It's kind of, that was, that was the downtime. I guess you would call, you would say so. Did it go by smooth on nine months or? Yeah, it was pretty smooth. We had a really good command team. Um, the platoon sergeants and like the squad leaders were awesome. They were really experienced. How about with your wife being home? Uh, that was Rocky. Um, I wasn't, I was young and I wasn't a real good husband and I wasn't, I was talking to other girls while I was over there. Uh So, um, I wasn't a really good someone to be proud of. Like I look back at him now and like, if I could go back, I'd kill that guy, but I can't. So all I can do is better going forward. Um, but it was, it was not good. She, she did, she did great in the atmosphere that I provided for her. Um, she's always been kind of an independent person. Um, she took what she had to deal with. Like she was in New York, single mom by herself, pretty much. Yeah. Um, with a from kid, Missouri, who never Missouri been up there. Yeah. In, in in a New York, a New York winter, late winter, and then summer. Um, she she survived. You know, um, yeah. I, I can't say it was good. Um, it wasn't smooth, but we got through it. Mm-hmm. Um. It was rocky when I came back, obviously, um, as it should have been. Um, but we got through it. Yeah. You came out of it, yeah, obviously. Came out of it. Um So let's talk. Let's talk. You come back. You get done with your okay. get done with your nine months, you come you come back come to back, drum. Um the way drum man, the way drum, I don't know if it's still like this, but when I was there it was like you're every month it felt like you were doing something in the field. You were you were training, you were either in the, in the field training, you were on red cycle. So you were doing like your recovery from just coming out of the field or you were prepping to go back to the field the next week. And it was like a constant cycle. Yeah. Um, and then you get, we threw in like JRTCs in the mix, um, all that stuff. And all that time we're trying to salvage what we could of our marriage, I guess you would say. Right. Um, working through all that, working the kinks out. Um, I think what you're talking about, though, like to to not, you know, I think that's common for a lot of guys, man. Like it's, it's very it's it's, it's 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 sadly it's it's like a I always it, it's funny because all the movies portray like the the soldier gets the dear John letter, but in my time in the army, I have seen more service members be the one that weren't doing the right thing. Yes, it's yes, it's, it's funny that the army wives always get or army spouses, I guess, get, get shafted and get that, um, that, that view people view them as like, Oh, mm-hmm. she, she left the service member. Yeah. It's like, and no, from most my these experience, do- most of the dudes in the army are the ones that are out fucking around. Yeah. Or um, they're pushing their wife away so yeah. much, man. Yeah. 
and it's like, yeah, they push a lot of them, push them away and they don't, yeah. they don't, a lot of it do it intentionally just because they, they don't want to deal with what's at home or they don't want to, they don't even realize they're doing it. Yeah. Um, but luckily she wasn't one to quit and I wasn't one to quit either. Um, we neither one wanted it to fail. Um, so we, we kind of just grinded through it, but it was, I mean, it was, it was a battle dude. Yeah. Um, from that whole next, even when I deployed my second one, like we weren't great. Yeah. I, I don't really, I don't think either one of us, I can't speak for her, but I, if I could, I don't think either one of us thought that we would make it through that one. Um, how far, how far of a gap was there? I was, uh, Were you so still I, with 10 so I, yeah, I was with drum for four years. Okay. I deployed twice with them. So I went, I got there in 12 deployed in 13 came back in 14 and then I was there for the rest of 14 and then deployed again. I don't really remember the dates. Well, the months. Yeah. Um, but we deployed my unit deployed to Iraq and my platoon, we had a new, a new PL and a, a fairly new platoon sergeant. Yeah. So they left numbers got cut. So they actually cut my platoon from it, but they deployed me and a couple, like a fire team yeah. forward, um, with them. And we went to Kuwait and we were going to Iraq. So we went to, um, Vesmaya, not Vesmaya. What's the little base that we got? Buring. Buring. We went to Buring. Oh yeah. Um, I was on Buring, um, and we were. I was an LNO for a while, and we were basically ensuring troop troop movement. Stuff, yeah. Getting troops in and out, and then um, equipment, LNO spots equipment sucks equipment though. It's boring, right? It's super boring. It, yeah. it was shift work. I mean, it was yeah. easy. It's easy, but it's um, like it's like you got to get a good rhythm or you're just going to be yeah. in misery the yeah, whole fucking it was, time. It was just a lot of movement, yeah. a lot of moving. It, like the hours were like, you wouldn't do anything for like a day or two. You're just kind of like prepping, prepping, um, pallets to get lifted, to get onto birds Yeah. or like trying to do manifest depending on numbers that were coming in. The big one was finding tents, like making sure they had somewhere to go when they did get there. Oh really? Um, Jeez. cause like there's, there's so many tents there, but like they, there was no like these are your tents. It was like you got to figure like just go yeah, somewhere. Yeah, no proper here, handovers. Just figure it out. Go somewhere in here and find beds. And I'm like, yeah. I need I need 200 beds. And there's there's you have 200 people spread throughout 15 tents. Yeah. And it was like because units weren't consolidated and stuff. And it was it was Nightmare. really it kind of pissed you off a little bit. Yeah. But because you think it would be more organized than that. It should be. Yeah. I mean, it would. It's logical to make it easy. But give me give me one second. We're gonna take a quick break. I want to jump back into that though. Right when we get back. All right. All right, we're back, guys. Uh, we're gonna jump back in, right back into it. Uh, Cody, your second deployment, kind of going into that. You were LNO, you said for a little bit. Um, what kind of went into that afterwards? Um, just or, did, as it was. Uh, I wasn't over there the full time, so I only did like half the deployment, and uh, I got to come home early, which is probably good. Um, yeah. With everything that was going on back home, um, we made it through that one, and then. I mean, it was a pretty, it was an easy, no threat deployment. Didn't have to carry a weapon or anything. It was pretty, pretty basically just troop movement. It was all admin based. Um, the guys that were in Iraq, all they were doing, they were training the Iraqi military. Yeah. In uh, Besmai, it was, uh, it was about 40 kilometers east of Baghdad. Yeah. In the desert. So all they were doing was like going through the motions trying to teach the Iraqi army to fight ISIS. Don't, don't you, that was kind of the developing thing at that time. I think it's so crazy how 
the you look at the Afghanistan versus Iraq war like Afghanistan it seems it was I don't know if it was it's not necessarily milder but it stayed at this constant level for a long time whereas Iraq it seemed like a spike like from 03 basically to like maybe 10 or 11 yeah it went like crazy you know battle fallujah all that stuff yeah. uh, uh, uh solder city all that stuff yeah. crazy insanity and then it just mellowed out a bit yeah whereas afghanistan it was like little conflicts over and over and over you got um what's the big um restrepo stuff where yeah. it was down in um corngall corngall valley i mean that was a nightmare but it was a nightmare for a long ass fucking time. Yeah. And then you got out west. I think there was there was some bullshit going on. Yeah. I can't remember the like spots Hellman, there. Hellman was pretty pretty. Hellman hot. province. Hellman yeah. Was hot. Yeah. Um, a lot of it. Like it, I mean, it's in. Yeah, you. But like that's just so crazy because Iraq it just mellowed out a bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> We're having technical difficulties. Um, so the. You dealt with that though. You're you're dealing with like this, the training and stuff. That was pretty much it, or yeah, that's all they really. That's all they were really doing was just training them, um, trying to make them make them teach them to do, you know, fitness. Trying to improve them as a as a fighting force in their own. Okay. So they could basically coordinate along with them and fight the war that they needed to fight. Yeah. I think a lot of I feel like a lot of Afghanistan. It seemed like it was like it was all province based. So like it would rotate from province to province. It's like they were moving throughout the country at different times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like certain parts would be hot while others were just dead. Yeah. And then, um, even when I went, it was later and there were like areas where you yeah. knew were just fucked. And then, and then a nothing. lot of it was real seasonal too. So like they would have like, yeah, it was like fair weather fighting. Like mm-hmm. they would, they would come home for the winter and then springtime would hit and they'd come back mm-hmm. from wherever they were coming from. And then they would fight for Afghanistan a while. Afghanistan does suck in the wintertime, though. Yeah, it's, it's not, brutal. It's, it was it's so cold. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was a drum for four years. And some of the coldest experiences I ever had in my life were up at that OP. Yeah. At Sultan Kill. Oh, it was yeah. just miserable. Um, you're doing everything you could just to stay warm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. But, yeah, it's wild how the, the fighting throughout in the two different places, even though they're like, they're not that far away, but they still are. Yeah, how different they were, and the, the Iraq, especially my my fourth one was in Iraq, my fourth deployment. Yeah, and it was like super political compared to anything I did in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was like a real political war. It was weird. How um, you're in your second deployment. Uh, where would you say your morale's at for staying in the army versus getting out? Or like, how did you feel about it at that point? Um, so my initial contract because I was 18 X-ray was six years. Um. It was long, so I was I was already there was no issue. Like at that point in time, I was kinda like a one contract person. Yeah. Especially with everything with life, um that I fucked up, I guess you'd say. Um, I was like, I'm done. I just want to be at home. Because like that whole deployment I wanted to be home. Cause like we were trying to work through stuff and we were doing like significantly better on that one just because I was able to talk to her regularly because I wasn't in a place where we got blackouts because you know somebody we had a kia right. or something yeah. there wasn't we didn't have blackouts while i was in kuwait um so i was able to contact her regularly i could go to the uso and like shoot her an email or text her 
or something. Um, so it was better. It, it could have been better, but it wasn't terrible. But I don't, I didn't want to stay in the army. Yeah. At all. Um, I was, I've, every time I've ever came up to a reenlistment, I hated it and I wanted to get out. Right. But I never, I mean, we'll get into that, but I never really had a reason to. <laughs> so, no, I get it. But at that time, I, I definitely it. was pretty, I just wanted to come home and be with her and be with my son and kind of work through it. Do you, um, you get to that, like, what, what did you find, like, in moments of times like that, like over, over there, was there anything funny going on or anything like you found joy in or what was like, um, what was like your solace, I guess, you know? Well, that like, was 2015. Yeah. Uh, not really. The, um, yeah. I would go, I'd go to the, like the, the USO. I mean, the people that if military, that if, if anybody in the military has gone to Afghanistan so or best. even in Iraq, USO. everybody went through, Buring most likely at some point in time. Um, the gym was good. I did a lot of workouts. Um, I was working out every day. Um, gym was solid there. The gym was Buren. really good. I was more USO, in Arab John, but it was like, still, they're both very good. Yeah, USO is great. The USO was good. And they would do like, there was, I would just go in there and watch like whatever sports were on. Um, that was, and there wasn't much joy in it. It was just kind of like, just do your job and go home. Yeah was all I was kind of there for. Um, my mind was pretty busy with everything that was going on within life. So I was kind of, and uh, too, like, it was weird. It was weird being kind of left out. I kind of feel like we were, my platoon was left out of that deployment because they took certain ones home to, with them. Yeah. It was like, we wanted to be, cause we trained up with them for the deployment. And then we, like the platoon got left behind for rear D. Well, even though I was in Kuwait, I was still supporting them more so than the rest of the platoon, but we still wanted to be there. So it was like, I was kind of torn between wanting to be in Iraq with them and then also wanting to be at home. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause like, oh, yeah. that's just the way when you're, when you're buddies, when you train up with people and your, your friends or whoever you're working with, like your, your team is outside the wire. Even if they're on just a patrol, like you want to be there with them. Cause you're like, you don't want, you don't want something to happen and you not be there yeah. to help, help your team, to help your friends. You know, I think it's the hardest part of the army is that it, people say it's a job or whatever, but it's like, well, you spend not like more time with your, your platoon. Oh yeah. Really your platoon more than your family. Oh yeah. Like you are attached to them in a very significant way, whether for good or bad. And like to, to say I don't want to be with them is just wrong. Like yeah. if you don't have an attachment to your platoon, you're you're probably you're either not trying or you, you really just hate them at that point. Like yeah. you're just sick of them. But you know, majority of it, you're you're gonna want to be with your boys. Oh yeah, and your girl, whatever 100%. it is, you know, hundred percent. So you um you get through this. It's six months. You said right. You only had to do uh, six even. months. I or, was only there yeah. for like four, like half the deployment, four and a half. Okay, so you get done with that. You're at pretty much your fourth year at that point, right? Yeah. And you get back. Um, so I come back and I populated on assignment for Fort Bliss. Um, so in 2015, right before I left for that second deployment, yeah. we had our second son. So Tyson was born yeah. in June. Oh and then I gosh. deployed, I think, in August. Yeah. So he was two months old. So I left in August Damn. and she had, so she had the two kids. And then I've gone for a few months. 
Um, so she 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 was a saint through that deployment too. Yeah, she's a single yeah. mom of two now. Um, she went home more, but she didn't stay home. She would go home a little bit and then come back to drum because I was home. You know, she was, yeah, yeah. She was comfortable at the our apartment. Um, so I got back to to drum and uh, it was AKO at the time. You could see your assignments and I had a thing that said Fort Bliss. And I was like, what's that? So I just clicked on it. <laughs> well, by clicking on it, you acknowledge that you want the assignment. Oh, I didn't no. know that. Um, I was just a dumb, I think, I guess I was a sergeant by that time, but I was just a dumb sergeant. Clicked on that. And then I got a thing saying, hey, you know, you populated on orders for Fort Bliss, but you have to extend for, I think it was like six months. Yeah. Because I didn't have the time Enough and service time. Yeah. to go fulfill the duty requirements. So I'm like, well, screw it. So I looked at her. I'm like, do you want to go to Texas? And she's like, yeah, sure. Let's try it. So we did extend it and then moved from upstate New York, 36 hours away to El Paso, Texas. Yeah, the, the polar opposite. Polar opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got down there. Almost all my PCSs all occurred in October. Um, so we got, I got back, um, I guess, right before Christmas of 15. And then I was back for 16, reported to Bliss in October of 16 immediately within like two weeks i was loaded up on a bus to go to ntc um at fort Irwin. yeah and then did that came back went on christmas leave and 2017 january 3rd got on a, a flight to go to uh kabul on oh h the airfield where all the who was F- that huh? was that first ad it was the first oh. armored yeah oh, okay. i was in 136 infantry down there oh, okay yeah so um Got down there, immediately moved in, and left, went to, went to NTC for a month, came back, God. did Christmas leave, and then um, deployed again in yeah. 2017. It was January 3rd, I think, is when my flight was. I flew out. And we went. We were in uh, Kabul on HKIA. Okay. That uh, The uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport. Yeah, yeah HKIA. Yeah. yeah, we were there. Um, and all we were doing... That's not bad. That's not a really a bad spot. It's a NATO base. Um, so it was... Just, the northern portion of the airport was like half of it was NATO. If you look at a map, you can actually see like this giant, I just call it a shit trench, but there's like this giant water trench. <laughs> yeah, that goes through the that, whole thing, right? That like cut it in half from, yeah. le- from east and west. And the east side was all NATO. Uh-huh. And the west side was the Afghan Air Force. And then right in the middle of it is a little bitty compound about the size of a football field. Yeah. And it was an Air Force compound. And our Air Force was training their air force on flying and mm-hmm. they were actually going out in these little bitty like piece of shit planes and they were bombing ISIS. Um, oh, wow. they took us there and we were like, we did, it was all guardian angel, like uh, PSD stuff. So we were basically like, we had it on assigned. I was a, uh, I had a, he was like the equivalent of our Colonel. I don't remember what his rank was, but he was, uh, he was like a Colonel for them that I was assigned to. Yeah. So like anywhere he went, I went. And so if he was out with like training in Afghan, I was with them. So I, yeah. I was flying with them and he was, uh, we were on the flight line with them. <laughs> and then like, um, since it was my third deployment, I was still just a sergeant, but I was pulled in, um, to the B doc. So like the night shift, I would work the B doc so I could talk to the towers that we had. And then we had a gate that controlled flow of traffic from the Afghan base over to the NATO side. Um, they were checking IDs to make sure who was coming and going. Yeah. Um, so we had teams out patrolling in trucks and they were patrolling the flight line to secure it and then doing like the little compound base defense. 
I would work that at night. And then like during the day, that colonel would like knock on my chew and be like, Hey, I got to go. And I'm like, all right, cool. Oh, we'd wow. Hop, we'd so hop in. Like, get, it was like go. me. It would be like me. And like, I had a driver that would drive us. Yeah. And I typically took one extra guy. You're from, a sergeant at this point, I guess. Or yeah. Okay. I was a, I, w- I went over as a team leader and I came back as a squad leader. <laughs> so I, we had a squad leader get to go back early for uh, something. And I took over for him. Yeah. But he, uh, so I, I would basically pull somebody from my team just so we all were going. So just in case, like it was, there was really no issues. Um, but just to have the numbers if, it, if it was needed. Um, and we'd like hop in like a little Toyota Land Cruiser and just take off and go wherever the Colonel needed to go. Jesus. He'd go meet with somebody set up for the next day. And then he'd be like, Hey, you got B doc tonight. And like, yeah, I do. And he's like, all right, cool. Well, we're leaving at like seven o'clock in the morning. So see if you can get you know a little Someone bit of shot eye or something. Some, yeah. Which there was um there was some Air Force security forces there. So like they had someone in the talk. So I would just like sit there and if I if I had to get up early, yeah, I would just like rack out for like a couple hours. And um like there were so many people in that B doc. There was like some guys from Triple Canopy were in there. And then <laughs> when they lost the contract, it was the uh Aegis took over, I think. Yeah, yeah. But they were like, it was all contractors and then some some security forces guys from the Air Force and then us. It was like just this little little bitty base of like, was, I think there was only like maybe 80 people on the whole thing. Yeah. It was small, but um, it was just a bunch of Guardian Angel and Uber Uber Eats and Uber Escorts is all it really was. Jesus. Um, they got that NATO side. That's kind of cool, though. It's it was, a cool deployment. It was like, fun. Yeah, I got a I got a TAC Air patch from the Air Force. Oh yeah. So I got like one of their deployment patches. Uh, um, it was fun. We were they over have there. the wildest patches too. They do. They're, yeah, they're cool. We were over yeah. there when the uh, when the Moab got dropped. Oh. So like it shook. It shook Remember watch that video. You're like, shook, what the fuck? It shook the yeah, dude. It shook yeah. the compound. We were yeah. sleeping because we were night shift, so it was hit during the day. And we were racked out and they shook it. And all the Joes were like, what the fuck was that? I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody hit the base. Yeah, like, dude. Like I was like on the radio. I'm like, did somebody just hit one of the ECPs? Oh and they're just like, no, we don't know what that was. And then it came out a little later what it yeah. was. And we're like, good Lord. Yeah. It shook I the country. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. <laughs> it shook the country. I watched I that like, video Jesus. like 10 times. I was like, oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. That thing, I mean, it shook us. And it was like, I don't remember how far they set away. It was it was like over 150 miles away, and it like yeah. it shook it shook the building. Like it's a, it was a 500 it was, uh, k- kilot. I don't know. It was this insane amount that just boom yeah. right on them. It was big. Yeah, <laughs> it was big. Yeah, but yeah, that was it was pretty neat. It was it was a fun deployment. Um, it was weird watching when we pulled out of Afghanistan, all the stuff going on at Hkaya. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, because like at the terminal where all the it's weapons dark, were at in the dude. terminal, mm-hmm. we were there. It was like, man, it was weird. Yeah, I was telling someone because Bagram got overran pretty early on. Yep, and I was, I think I told Danielle or something. I was like, somebody's probably like, there's there's a fucking Al Qaeda member or somebody that's in my office right now, like yep. ripping shit apart. Like yep. it's all every and then like I don't know if you feel that way, but like I feel like a lot of people. Everything you worked for, whether it was big or small, like I didn't have these crazy roles, but still went. And you, you did all this stuff. It, everything you worked for, it's gone. Every, it's, it's every, gone. every place that I went to in Afghanistan or Iraq is in the hands of who we were keeping it from 20, right now. 23 years, basically, yeah. of work for nothing. 
Yeah, that first cop that we were on in Afghanistan. Yeah, we left that, gave it over. We actually retrograded that. So like they moved down a base from northern Afghanistan to Ghazni, okay. and then we shut the, our base down and left, moved everything. On that note, we're gonna take a little break. <laughs> we're gonna go. Sounds good. We're gonna go watch our kids, and, <laughs> and we'll be back to tell tell dad, stories. Hashtag dad mode. Yeah. Guys, to end off this podcast, I just wanted to point out two of the coolest people. While they're not sponsors, they are people that what they're doing is near and dear to my heart, okay? First off, I want to talk about the bus stop, which was ran by Eric's wife, Kendall, okay? It's called the bus stop, and they sell coffee and gathered goods, okay? Which means she's she's culminating a whole lot of things such as I've seen stickers to mugs to wicker baskets to t-shirts to a whole lot of stuff that's really like kit not only kitschy but it's it's cool and it's good gifts um it's it's those kind of things you know as a family you go looking for in the weekends and you're like that's a cool little spot not to mention they made it entirely out of a bus go check it out you're gonna love it okay their hours are from th- on thursday through sunday it's seven to three and then on monday it's five thirty to noon all right let's just talk about some of their um some of their drinks they got going. They got the white pumpkin. They got the bonfire. It's my favorite. The bonfire was amazing with what I had. They got the deer hunter, which is for these badasses around here. They got caramel apple, the nutty squirrel, the whipped vanilla chai, and a sweet leaf, as well as just regular drip coffee, which they are excellent at, <clears throat> and other espressos and frappes, which... Um, everybody's gonna love a whole lot of options get out there get you some good coffee try it out okay the next one i want to talk about is fifth element tattoo okay this is what while we didn't dive into it this episode with eric this is his baby that he's been running actually for a couple years now so the experience they have there by not only by him but uh, one of the people he taught jenna and then their new person, um, Jennifer, okay? All their pieces, if you look on the Facebook, they are amazing. Okay, I can't wait to go get one myself there, hopefully. Um, it is by appointment only, okay? So if you go on their Facebook, you can literally see the link. It books right with them. It works right off a of schedule. Reach out to them. Get you something going. It's not that bad, all right? Um but these people are actually injecting a new economy into Mary's County, which I think is um, outstanding. Okay. Thank you guys uh, for your support and take care. Hey guys, wanted to reach out to another friend here before we get done with this podcast. Just my buddy, uh, Johnny Siebert. Okay. Real nice guy. He actually just started his own little business called Johnny Rotten's Egg Wax. Okay. If you go skating, you're going to need a little bit of wax for your board to get those get those moves right and everything. Sometimes with wax, we lose it along the way. With Johnny's uh, patented um, egg-style wax, he's actually onto something to where you can actually just take that with you instead of losing an entire box of wax. So um, reach out to Johnny. What he's doing is starting to grow, and it's a, it's a great product, okay? For all you skaters out there, especially after listening to this podcast, it's definitely going to be something you're going to want in your arsenal. So that's Johnny Rotten Egg Wax, which is actually his Instagram handle. Or you can look up Johnny Rotten Egg Wax company site, and it'll take you right to how you can order. Reach out to him. 
Thanks, guys. Welcome back for for like the eighth time. We're good to go. Um, I wanted to be. We're uh, back out here with Cody. Me and him took a change of scenery out here to a bonfire outside. Hopefully, we keep it going. Um, we were talking about your experience with the deployment. Your third deployment. You were in. You were in Af- Afghanistan again, or you were in yeah, Iraq? Yeah, the third yeah. one was Hkaya. Yeah, Hkaya. Yeah, Hkaya and Kabul. And yeah. we were talking about Moab got dropped, and yeah. Uh, so, expand on that. What do you, what else uh, went down, or what no, did you feel? Nothing yeah. really. It was just a lot of uh, guardian angel and hanging out with the Air Force guys and watching them train the Afghan pilots. Um, just real, real simple. Um, just flew out to the desert a couple times and watched them. Basically, just training. That's all they did. Um, yeah, it was pretty low impact. Got to work with a lot of, uh, meet a lot of the NATO forces and like, like Australians and some Polish and a lot of Turkish people. That's fun, dude. Working yeah. with working with those allies and stuff. It's, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, there was a lot of Turkish ones there, and um, the defects, the Turkish defects were awesome. <laughs> and uh, there was an Italian one there as well that was pretty good. Oh hell yeah! yeah. Where was that? At? It was in Hkaya, right? Yeah, yeah, it was Hkaya. Yeah, they had um. Down in um, when I visited Kandahar, they had a couple of different ones like that, and they were always super fun to visit. You know, yeah, it's always it's a neat experience. A lot yeah. of a lot of different culture and military cultures. They're different. So yeah, to yeah. Meet a lot of their stuff and shoot their weapons and see their vehicles and stuff and just yeah. meet their people. This is like your fifth, sixth year in the or sixth year basically, right? Uh, that in would have been or? 2017. Yeah. So yeah, it was about five yeah. five into six. So uh, you come off of that. That was a nine month again, or yeah, that one was okay. nine, and then came off of that. I easier re- on the marriage, or yeah, okay. significantly easier. We were in a pretty good place then, um, still going strong. Uh, that one, no, no children additions during that one. Good, good. So that, they, that came <laughs> yeah. after all four Campbells. So. Yeah. Um, so came back from there, and then I re-enlisted there. While we were in oh, Afghanistan, overseas. yeah, uh, I re-enlisted there for what I think four more years. I don't even remember. I think it was yeah. four more years. Um, re-enlisted to go to Alaska. Um, we were going to go to Fort Wainwright, um, and then got back. Basically, did nothing but get ready to um, to PCS. Um, helped. I was like, and went and did a couple OC things for the battalion as I was kind of moving out to. Uh, help facilitate i was in first brigade so we were helping second brigade prepare for their deployment yeah um and fort bliss is so big they can train whatever they want without really going to ntc oh so we were doing like they were doing like brigade movements and stuff there damn and i was just kind of like operating as like a fire marshal for them did they just use like white sands and stuff or is uh just that parts parts of like the border of white sands um not all the way out there but like yeah bliss is like the the base itself is big, but like when you talk about the training area, it is massive. Yeah, it's huge. Um, so which we is were, crazy because it looks like it's in downtown El Paso. Yeah, you know? it's like yeah, the northern part and then like all that desert north of El Paso. Mm-hmm. It even up into like a lot of it goes over to like New, New Mexico, Mexico. Yeah, so you're up there. Um, but I was just a fire marshal, and our company commander was out there, and I was just kind of rolling around with him. Um, supporting like the squad leaders doing like giving them OC input back. And then if they called for fire, I would go out there with like a, a Humvee or a side-by-side and like drop a, a smoke or something to signal. Yeah. Their, their stuff landed at this grid or whatever. Oh, cool. Just cool. to kind of like give them feedback. Um, 
and that was about it. But and then PCS from there, um, that was a nightmare. So we were supposed to go to Alaska, and then like right before household goods came, we had cleared out of our house, moved everything into storage, and household goods was going to get our stuff from a storage unit. Yeah. Um, because of like the way the timeline worked out, it was just the way we had to do it. And they were going to, they changed our orders last minute. We were going to go to Riley because of Wyatt's cleft lip and his EFMP stuff. Oh, he wasn't okay. going to be able to go to Alaska. And we found out two weeks prior. So they changed it to Fort Riley in Kansas. And then, Ooh. so we were like doing what we could to find a house there, bumbling. And then literally right before we were supposed to leave again, they changed it. And they're like, you're going to Campbell. Jesus. We're like, what the fuck? So... It, basically we called household goods again and they're like yeah we can't facilitate that now because it's a totally different direction um so it ended up being a full ditty on ourselves last minute um so in that amount of time they extended our our the pcs date like a month to the right oh okay so we went and crashed at a buddy's house um luckily they had the space for us but stayed with him and his wife and then loaded everything up in a u-haul on our own and moved to fort campbell kentucky Tennessee, whichever one. But, yeah. Um, that was a trip reported there. And uh, first thing that my first sergeant said when I met him was, uh, are you ready to go to Iraq? And I'm like, well, and I was like, well, I just kind of got back a couple months, like barely, like I was still within my fenced in time. So yeah, you're, you're, I had, yeah. I had like another three months to go. Yeah. And they were, it was the same timeline, got there in October, deploying again in January. So I had the time. And he's and I was like, well, I go, I just got back. I go, I don't want to be that guy, but if you don't need a staff sergeant, I will stay here. Yeah. I go, if you're gonna take me just because you think I want to go, I'll stay here. And I'm like, but if you need staff sergeants, I'll go. And he's like, I need staff sergeants. I go, well, then what are we talking about? So, um, did some train up for that. They had already done JRTC, so I dodged that bullet. Um, just did some field stuff there at Campbell. Um, Kind of just got familiar with the group and got stuff. Got familiar with the group. Um, I was in a third, the first platoon in 1327 Bulldog, yeah. and they were the War Pigs, so we were the War Pigs. Um, had a good platoon sergeant. Uh, you told me that's like one of your favorite units, right? Like those, were, um, they I were loved, good dudes. I loved the unit and the camaraderie of Campbell as a whole. Yeah. Um, a lot of Kool-Aid to drink. It wasn't as bad as the Rakasans. Yeah. Um, but... I enjoyed my time at Campbell. Yeah, I liked the helicopter operations because you mm -hmm. didn't have to ruck everywhere and you didn't have to deal with the strikers. Um, it was pretty good. Um, and then that's finally when I got to go to air assault school. I tried to go my whole time, and I got to go when I got to Campbell, <laughs> but went after deployment, of course. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we got there, did a little train-up, and then went to holiday block leave Christmas and then came back in January and deployed again. Uh, that time we went to Iraq and we were in Mosul. Okay. So. Um, this is like 2017? 2019. 2019. Yeah. yeah. So we we had Easton. She was pregnant when I left there, uh, when I deployed there. And then Easton was born on June 13th. And I had been over there for like six and a half months. By yeah. Then, six months or so. Um, so she did that one alone. Um, we had Jesus. we had a friend that was at Campbell that was a friend that we had made at Drum when yeah. we were there first time. And she helped her with the other kids. And she was there for her in the hospital when she was in labor. And she actually got to cut the cord for Easton. So she's oh, like the, 
the uh, like automatic godmother for, right. for him. Um, Shout out, like I think it's a big deal. Like it, like spouses, a lot of military spouses get shit on because they like some. Some a lot of times it's the dependapotamus shit like or whatever, but like some people throw the rank around, but you don't see the other side like we we're talking about like the other side where a lot of these like wives like they're putting their lives basically on hold to be a mother, a yep. single mother yep. dealing with so much craziness that they did not really ask for. Absolutely. Like, and you know they it, they say like well you signed up for it. It's like they didn't sign up for a lot of this stuff. Like nobody can tell you how crazy it is. Um, so I just want to—it's—it's it's insane to me the amount that um, military wives are put in for their kids, you know. Oh yeah, the ones that like stick it out and like deal with it at all. Yeah, like, they're all saints, all of them. But the like if they go through multiple experiences all the time apart, like it's like for the most part they're like they're uh, borderline single mothers for a majority of the time. Yeah, like especially like as a drill and like the deployment on and off. It's uh, they're they're saints. It's like they do it all alone. It's like I know my wife's been alone the majority over half of my time in the army. She's been alone, so yeah. So she's uh, they're definitely next level savages. <laughs> um, uh, how was the um? This is your fourth deployment, twenty nineteen. Yeah. Iraq, Mosul. Yeah. How is it? So we were. If you look at like a map, there's a bend in the Tigris where it cuts through the northern part of Mosul. Yeah. And like right there, there's a couple big palaces that were part of Saddam's family, and they had a thing. There's like a little base called the Nineveh Oper- Operation Center, the Nock. Yeah. That was built off of one of Saddam's sister's palaces, and we had like fighting positions up on the roof of that. And that deployment was literally just basically Uber Eats for the battalion commander. Um, we just kind of did the Force Pro thing, pulled the guard, and then did patrols throughout Mosul, taking him to, like, the police chief. And we went up to the the big dam north of Mosul that supplied water in the reservoir for all that area. Um, we went to We went east into some towns and then all the way over to, like, Kurdistan um to do some stuff and then we went west uh for a couple a couple trips to do um there was a town called Cocho mm-hmm. where the department of state was doing some stuff some press stuff yeah because whenever ISIS invaded they basically mowed down this entire town of men and boys basically and yeah. buried them in one mass grave well they were digging them up and giving them proper burials so we went out there and like secured their area because there were some pretty fairly high level department of state people that were coming out for it so we had to go deal with that and that was like a five-hour drive across uh iraq to get there um it wasn't bad it was pretty cool but that whole thing the whole time there was like it felt political because our biggest like you were dealing with they claimed isis but it felt like we the the iranian uh I think they call them like the popular mob, uh, mobility force or some shit like that. We just call them the PMF, but they were uh, like basically military contractors that were working there to secure the area. Yeah. Same thing we were doing, but they were trying to get the primary focus of being like the sole ones there and working to get Americans out. So they were like, they were like obstructing movement and they would stop us at places and they knew how, they know how we operate. We've been there for so long. Um, they'd like roll through and record you 
and like with their cell phones and like they'd be posting shit on Twitter about, you know, like them doing stuff to like America, like America, like trying to flex on them. And they were basically trying to, it felt like a propaganda war where they were trying to portray us as like the bad guys. Yeah. And they would, they would do like shows. We, we called it like a show of force. Essentially they would like roll up with like, they had like these Chevy Silverado, uh, they're like 3,500s. Yeah. And they'd have like dishkas and like they had one that had an mounted on the back and mounted on them, like their technicals and stuff. And they would flex with that stuff, trying to get us to react to them. To make us look like You're we, were, we were there as a yeah. hostile, yeah. a hostile force. So they, when the election came around, they're soon to vote whether America stayed in there or left. They were trying to get us to make us look bad so we could leave, and then they would have the run of Iraq and the oil and all that other shit. Yeah, um, that whole war, just that whole time there, it was just like super political. Yeah, you were talking it, about that earlier. It's, it sounds yeah, political it was, as fuck. It, it was yeah. it was wild, man. It was nothing like Afghanistan. Like yeah. Afghanistan was like waiting on the Wild West to kick off. Yeah, and this yeah. was just like it was all. It all felt like a giant publicity stunt, and like they were just trying to portray you as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you don't want us to be here. Why the fuck are we here? Like, but I mean, it was cool. Like we saw some beautiful areas um, for a, a bombarded city. Like there's some really cool like historical like biblical um structures and locations that are in that area well, iraq used to be a uh a yeah. tourist spot yeah back in the, the 60s oh yeah there was a too. there was a uh, massive hotel there that was like yeah. five star and that that thing was we went in it is it, but there was a a uh a jdam had went through the middle of it oh shit but it was like destroyed <laughs> but like there was still like it was like marble staircases yeah and stuff yeah in it. and um uh, i mean so the, the the palaces that we were in like we would go through the palace to go upstairs to where like we had the fighting positions. Yeah. So, cause like from there you had like a bird's eye view of the entire city. So you would go up there to, to get to like your team or whatever was up there. Um, if you were the SOG for or Sergeant of the guard for the night yeah, or the day, whatever shift. And like, it was all marble staircases and like beautiful fountains and stuff. And it was like just riddled with like shrapnel and bullet holes and just, destruction from all the bombs it's like couldn't imagine what it was like before it yeah ju- before it ju- all the shit just went got down lit the fuck up yeah um but it was beautiful um but yeah it was it was interesting it was definitely an interesting experience and it was the same thing with like the iraqi we were right there with the iraqi forces and they they felt it get, i got the same vibe from them as the um afghans the way they it was all about status and getting a paycheck because you could see like their their non-commissioned officers and all their enlisted people were like still skinny and like just wearing like the bare necessities and they'd have like their their mag pouches stuffed with like socks and cardboard to make it look like they had stuff but they didn't yeah and like their officers were all fat as shit can i ask so, you i, I want to ask a question because i've heard this a lot uh uh ncos i hear in the army like u.s army are really the only we're the only um, military force kind of in the world that uses NCOs the way we do, right? Or did uh, you see the, that in the, your experience cl- or no? The closest I have seen out of all my experiences was probably the Australians. Yeah. The Australians operated, I don't think there is, they don't have as much authority, I guess, or they're not entrusted with as much as we are, but Australians kind of operate in the same aspect. 
Did the other ones just like, is the officer supposed to be the one like, no shit, just leading everything? Yeah. And NCO is just pay grade. Like they're just, that's the time they've been in. They're very, very much like that. Um, Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? I even feel like in in a way, (laughs) the longer I'm in the army, I I noticed that amongst us as well. There's some people, I'm not going to say any names, but there's some Mm -hmm. individuals that are senior ncos that i would consider to be ncos they are very very solid whatever level of nco they are and then there's there's some that are just a pay grade they're there to collect a paycheck and get a bullet oh yeah absolutely while certain ones like carry the brunt of everything and they are they are like what an nco should strive to be and like something to look look towards for a senior non-commissioned officer yeah i i think that's hard because it's like I also feel like the NCO thing of NCOs being like the backbone and like officers being nothing that changed really after this Vietnam because during Vietnam before officers were still like very hard, like hard headed, hard charging, like dudes that wanted to get shit done. But then it all transpired to this thing where NCOs became like the the worker bees and officers just kind of ran the behind the scenes shit and it, yeah. it didn't really matter. I think it's just a weird thing that I, I had noticed have not only has our history changed that, but around the world, everybody else sees officers as like this glorified thing. Whereas the really the only people that see it for what it truly is, is the enlisted. Yeah. And, and it's not just the army. The Navy's the same way. The Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard, I don't fucking know, but Marines, uh, Navy, and Air Force, it's it's all very similar. Yeah. So it's just odd. Oh yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, wholehearted. I think uh, I think a lot of it, like stemming back to like Nam, like you were talking, I think a lot of it's because officers didn't. They, I mean, they only expected to live like a lieutenant, and Nam was, was two only minutes? expected like he's like yeah, it was it was short. Yeah, and like NCOs were there, they had to be, and like that was the only continuity that this, the platoons had. Yeah, because the lieutenants were dying so fast, so they had to look to something, and like that kind of. I mean, you got dudes who like if it's a sergeant first class, it's like the right hand man to a lieutenant, but the sergeant first class has been in for you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years with multiple deployments. That's the experience and the leadership you need. Yeah, to guide that lieutenant. And if you have lieutenants or officers, he won't listen to their non-commissioned officers, or at least like involve them in planning and coordination. Then it's it's you better have Plan B, C, and D in effect before you step off because you're going to be there pretty fast. Yeah. If you if you look at the awards too for the past like um, I would say thirty years the percentage of NCO to officer. And I know awards are sometimes bullshit, but when you look at silver stars and medal of honors, there's a purpose for them. You look at them, I would say 90% are enlisted at this point. And then, you know, some are officers, but a lot of them are special forces too. Like it's like SEALs, SF, uh, Rangers, whatever, you know, where it's a, a few and far between. But I, I digress. We're getting... I got a little off topic there. I'm sorry. I just, so good. I, I like that topic of NCOs versus officers. Um, oh yeah. What? So you get through this deployment. This one went pretty smooth too, as far as family time. Yeah, we had, um, 
we had pretty good i mean by the time the war was over there there was pretty good infrastructure throughout the whole everywhere we were at so yeah was this you, still 2019 when it ended for you yeah or? we came back we left in january and came back like october of 19 okay. right before halloween yeah um so we had we were able to reach home we didn't lose anybody no 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 casualties um so we were able to contact home and like talk to family and like we were good um yeah, by then they had, had kind of Wi-Fi and everything. Built yeah, they up. had you Wi-Fi could, everywhere, and like yeah. you could get these little sapphire the pucks, the yeah. little pucks, dude, and yeah, you could pucks. get internet anywhere. Yeah, um, I, I never got, it. I never got one, but everybody that had one, they loved it. They thought it yeah. was like you, you could know. just pay for like a monthly subscription, and like I used it like coming back, I'd pay for like a day. Yeah, so you had anywhere you could do it anywhere, and it was it was great. But um, yeah, so she had she had Easton while we were I was over there, and he was born in June. Um, I was on SOG that night Damn. and, uh, my first sergeant was in there and he had, he had an internet service through the uh, Iraqis that he was able to play overwatch online from his office <laughs> and I was in overwatch. There. Yeah. Dude. He's playing overwatch. Yeah, I dude. was in there at like three o'clock in the morning and like FaceTiming her and she's in labor. And, uh, I had like the radio sitting right there next to me at the talk and all this shit. And first sergeant comes up, he's like, is she in labor right now? And I'm like, she is. And. He's like, give me the radio. <laughs> and he took oh, off, Jesus. and he took over my SOG shift so I could FaceTime her through through. Labor. That's dope. That's cool. And like all my dudes were pissed. Whenever we got done, why are uh, they pissed? Because I didn't tell them that first sergeant was coming. To oh, SOG. <laughs> like, there was like, oh no, it was like three four o'clock in the morning, and they're up there in their fighting positions mm. or their little towers at the gates. And <laughs> first sergeant comes walking in, and uh, I had one as. I'm not gonna say his name, but I had one no. dude who was he was a character. He's like he's like Sarm, what the fuck? He's like first time I'm walking in and talking to me for like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hopefully you didn't say anything bad. Yeah, like, like, please be in full kit. <laughs> <laughs> please be in full kit. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. It was pretty cool. It was a good it was a good company. It was a good um, I guess last deployment to kind of wrap up my time. Yeah. And then um, since I had the baby, they they knew that was gonna happen while I was there. So they sent me out on torch on like the initial flight to get out there. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. whenever I came back, you were the sure first to come back. Again. Yeah. So I got back. He was what three months old, I guess, by the time. Uh, Damn. Three, four months old when I came back and met him. Um, real easy travel home. It wasn't bad. Yeah. Um. And then, pretty much, I guess I was did a couple training things after that at Campbell and. I went to aerosol school. Got yeah, to, yeah, got yeah. to finally go do that after ten years in the army, not even nine years, I guess. And then, mm. um, when I well, I started doing the math, and uh, my platoon sergeant even talked to me about it. He's like, "You better start thinking about what you want to do for your broadening because yeah, it's coming." And recruiter. I looked, and I'm like, "Man, my time on station and my squad leader time is all going to wrap up around the same time." And uh, so I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. And then when I went up to talk to the school guy, uh, I had already been DA selected for drill. Yeah. So I was like, well, when's my date? And he's like, you're going in, uh, I think I went in July. I graduated in August or September. So he's like, you're going here. So they automatically, my squad leader time was done. So they pulled me from that. So I basically just, I worked with a bunch of other uh I was a weapon squad leader, so I worked with a bunch of other weapon squad leaders within the battalion, and we kind of built up a like a, we called it a uh, machine gun university. Yeah, just to train up just for, train for up. new dudes. Yeah, it was like a, a week and a half long of 
um, the new weapon squads to prepare them for like the future training cycle and like made a pretty good product and like put it on a share drive. So it would carry good continuity. And, That's what yeah, it's all about. It was, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, we did that and then yeah. we all had like a certain aspect of it. We had to teach and it was good. It, it turned out pretty well. Um, but then, yeah, they got done with that and went to drill. Well, I, I wanted to ask real quick. Cause I, you know, you had all this time, uh, training and stuff like with infantry, like that's, and you know, it's, it's, army task it's it's bare bones like what you what you see is what you get you know infantry shit what was your favorite part of like training all that stuff um i really enjoyed anything in the field i loved being in the field um i love my job it's the garrison shit that drives me nuts i love i loved being in the field and when we could go do like our ftx's and work out like uh basically anything i like setting in the machine guns doing platoon operations and raids was probably my favorite um i loved like the individual movements of the weapon squad and the, the low the low crawling to get into position trying to settle in without being spotted um all of that was pretty fun Okay, and like the I was I was telling you we had a little gap there, but uh, I think it's so cool. Like we were talking about t- training with the boys, like on the platoon level, like getting them. You teaching stuff that you've dealt with, and they they are like clueless on, yeah. and then you see them grow on it is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, watching like using what you've done and your your experience and, like, the experience of your peers. Because, like, in that platoon, that was probably, besides my first platoon I was ever in that I deployed with, that platoon had the most experience I think I've ever deployed with. Yeah. Um, as far as, like, my peers, like, because it was my fourth deployment. And then um, the, there was another staff sergeant that was there with me. That was It was his fourth deployment. The platoon sergeant was on his third, I think. Yeah. And then we had we had a – he was a sergeant, but he was a prior service Marine who had deployed twice. So he was on his third deployment. Jesus. So, like, um, that deployment, we were working with a lot of, like, uh, Marsoc was there. at the Oh, little oh you were telling me about that. Yeah, yeah, I told you about that at work. Um, but the, the Marsoc guys were there, the Raiders. And I don't remember what unit we relieved, but they weren't working with them. But when they saw us with the 101, they were, they were like, we'll use you guys. And we went and kind of the same thing that we did with the SF guys at the – in Afghanistan, we were going with that security and stuff. Yeah, and we would cordon, but in our in Iraq, we were cordoning off like this mountain range. Yeah, that there was a lot of, I just kind of like rat holes and mole holes throughout it where they were cacheting weapons and supplies. Yeah, and they were raiding it, but every time they'd raid, they'd just kind of squirt out the different holes around the mountain and just yeah. disappear. So we were helping kind of contain as much of it as we could. And basically, you would just kind of like shoot to drive them back into it. Yeah. So the Raiders could get to them. Yeah. They, they so were, they were, they were, they were yeah. trying to capture them. Yeah. Um, it was, we were trying to do what we could to shoot, not to kill, but if, unless they were like shooting at us, but just you had to defend yourself. But most of it was just trying to deter their movement and keep them stuck in the hole. So um, it was interesting. It was fun. And working with Marsoc was pretty cool. Those guys, just a whole nother level of like, um, high-level trained dudes like the SF guys that you don't get to work with often with Marsaw because yeah. of the different branches. But they had some cool toys, and they were they were cool dudes yeah. to work with, and it was fun. 
joint training is always like the coolest like yeah. nato training and joint training is always like a very fun experience and you would learn a lot from it yeah absolutely it's it's yeah. definitely a good thing to broaden your horizons and learning their tactics it gives you a different perspective on the way you can do things and yeah. a whole other way to look at it. it makes you better what um so you got the drill thing going now yeah, almost well kind of over i just finished my third year basically yeah. let's dive into it how was it tell me it was rewarding yeah. and it was a shit show all at the same time it's kind of a love-hate relationship i yeah. loved parts of it um a lot of teaching uh the first two years i did bct here at fort leonard wood um the bct life is just a lot of hours a lot of teaching um i was i kind of typically spearheaded the the tactics anything tactic related or the rifle marksmanship or like land navigation yeah was always kind of what i went after i let the other drills handle dnc because dnc sucks yeah. um but I always went after RM pretty hot and heavy, um, trying to get them on that. And whenever you take kids that had never shot or never did anything tactically or didn't know anything about the woods or land nav, and you could see them, like, not really, like, be stellar at whatever, but, like, improve over time and get better and go on to qualify and, like, achieve things that they didn't think they could do. Uh, it was always – it was kind of rewarding in a way, For I sure. guess you could say. Um I'm, I can, I mean, obviously I can relate a little bit, not in that sense because I was at AIT, but I know what you're talking about where like you instill some of this stuff and you're like, you're wishing for it to grow and you see a little bit of it sprouting and you're yeah. like, oh, you know what? I kind of did some of that. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I'm glad I could influence someone in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like as much time as you put into them, you don't want to see them fail. You know, it's like, I'm here, absolutely. From, I'm here at like four o'clock in the morning. And I'm here until nine o'clock at night. It's like, I don't want you to fail. Otherwise yeah. I failed you. Yes. Like, like if you suck, that's a direct reflection of me. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't, I've never had the phone call, but you always hear how they're like, do you, people get to their units and they're like, who the fuck was your drill sergeant? And it's like, I don't want any of mine to be that kid. Yeah. Um, I want them to go where they're going and be at least as good, if not better than their peers who came from wherever else they came from. So, yeah. um, I did what I could to make them, and I tried to put it into terms. Um, I did doctrine, but I also gave them, like, your spiel. A, a, affiliated with, like, um, and supported it with experiences and, like, logical stuff that would kind of make it make more sense or make it make sense for them Yeah. to help them out. Because, um, like, doctrine, you read it, it's kind of it's cut and dry, but it's kind of open to interpretation at the same time. <laughs> so uh, tried to help them be the best you could, and then – did two years of that i think i got through i got started doing that and right after thanksgiving in november of 2020 so covid was kicking off pretty good 21 was full covid um and i think all throughout that one was everything with basically just getting the shots making sure the privates had the shots and facilitating movement when you could because yeah. like the timelines were yeah. so crunched um, with like trying to keep them separate, uh, like separated and mm -hmm. spaced out and everything. It was kind of hard. And then, um, it kind of slacked off a bit in 2020, especially towards the end of 2020, uh, 2022, I mean, sorry. And then the, when I got hit with the third year, when I had to do a third year of it, they gave me the opportunity to switch over to AIT if I wanted for a, a different 
just different change of scenery basically yeah and i jumped on it and um so i met you yeah and it's the third year doing what we're doing it's kind of a brush of fresh air um the all the training doesn't fall on you and like with delta where we're at it's kind of low impact anyway yeah um it's not too bad um different different experience different I- interesting different, learning yeah. in- interesting learning the job of another mos because like i never really was around too many other mos's especially 74s yeah um so it's kind of it's definitely cool coming to the seaburn world and seeing the equipment you all have and like how you facilitate it and get, when you go to the field like the operations that goes into it for like the instance that like like i never really thought about it but like a nuclear war goes like we're pretty much fucked yeah. Until, yeah. We, until we get to you yeah, guys. It's, yeah. It's not cool. So, so it's, it's not uh, cool. <laughs> it's uh, definitely a, a good learning curve, and I met some cool people. So yeah. it wasn't bad. Just a, a busy, busy three years. And um, I don't want to – you know as well as I do, we don't want to dive down the dry – The I'm not going to dig too deep into the drill stuff because it's um, it's a weird beast, and not a lot of people understand it, so it's all good. Um, I want to ask your plans for the future. Um, you got a lot going on. Can you tell me about it and stuff? Just what, what general overview of what's, what's about to happen for you? Yeah. So we just shipped all the kids out. Um, I, I'm, I'm done being a drill on December 31st. So I will start out 2024 as a staff sergeant again, not a drill sergeant. Yeah. Um, I plan, I do not. So I went to SLC, uh, to be senior leaders course for those of you who don't know to be a sergeant first class uh god back in the spring i guess and they called for i had to re-enlist and it's the contract where i have to go saying i'm going to 20 and i'm at at 11 years so it's a nine-year enlistment with um needs of the army so i don't get to pick where i go and no duty station uh no bonus so uh, my wife and i have thought about it for about a year and we're deciding it's time to separate from the military um I'm wrapping up my bachelor's degree. Uh, I've been pursuing that for, God, I guess since 2010. Uh, here we are. Um, in Homeland Security, uh, I've kind of branched into a cybersecurity um, sector as well as like uh, counter intel, counter terror. Um, hoping to implement my military background with that on paper. And then uh, I have a a basically an internship or a skill bridge thing set up with a company out of St. Louis that works along that and facilitates like uh, security, cyber security systems to like a, quite a few federal agencies as well. Um, and overall goal is I'm trying to get into the geospatial intelligence agency in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, they have multiple positions, but there's a counter Intel and uh, officer position that I would try to get. So it's, it's a GS thing, still federal, but but a different different focus than military tactics and stuff. It's it li- sounds yeah, little more. Uh, I don't know, little more. I don't have to move as much. I'll be here. It sounds more robust and it sounds more fulfilling. You yeah, know, something sounds, sounds something. Solid. I'm still helping. To, yeah. I have a purpose and like ho- still hoping to hopefully help defend the country, but I won't be having to go to places that. I don't feel like I'm doing anything anymore. So yeah. we'll see. Um, get some family time back and slow down a little bit. We'll see. Cody, I, I love your story. I, I had a couple questions um, before we wrap this up. My There's a back and forth question here. I had a question. What do you think the best part about our country is right now? 
And then what do you think the worst part about our country is right now? Oh, God. Oh, man. What's good about the country? I think the uh, it's good. The country still has a lot of people that are willing to voice and stand up for what it was created for. They're there to back up what the Constitution means, and they're fighting for it. Um, I think the worst thing about our country is basically the lack of education and willingness to learn and be open to other people's opinion that seems like a large number of the population has. Um, I feel like people just kind of take what they see on the news as a way to get their knowledge instead of diving into anything and researching stuff on their own and making their own decision. Basically, I feel like people let others make decisions for them and it's leading to issues within the country and we're not a united front and that poses a weakness in my eyes um, from a tactical mindset. If you're not a united front, like we were after September 11th, um, all the big events that ever happened when we had started major wars, America was like one united front coming after we kind of had a common goal. Um, and regardless of which side you were on, whatever it was, you could rally around the fact that we were attacked. We love America. We're trying to save it. And now we feel super divided and you see it within the army. You see it within the civilians. You see it within the trainees we're, we're training because they're, they're like, they'll automatically segregate themselves based on whatever fucking faction they follow. Yep. And it's like, dude, like you guys could be in a war next year. Like, what are you going to do then? Like yeah. you better, you better figure it the fuck out. Um, and it's, it's after doing as much as time we've done in the army, you and I both, it's just kind of heartbreaking. It's kind of like, what was it all for? You know, yeah. it kind of feels like it was almost a waste. Um, but got four kids born for no money and I learned a lot. I grew a lot as an individual during my time, um, coming in when I did, I thought I was pretty, pretty grown up. I was an adult, but after being in this long, I had a lot of growing up to do. I think I have grown up significant amounts from what I was and I got a lot more growing to do still. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I loved all that, man. Um, I'm happy I had you on. I want to ask you like 20 other questions. Uh, unfortunately I don't want our kids to, uh, just wither away inside with our wives as they lose their minds. So, um, I'll have you back on probably sometime, but I, I really appreciate you coming out here doing this. Um, it was a joy to listen to your story and I appreciate all your opinions and your viewpoints of what you talked about, man. Thank you. I was a privilege coming out here. I've never done this. Um, my wife and I have dabbled with the idea of trying to start one. She wants to do one. Um, that's like separated, like marriages where they're distant. Like we have, um, I think she wants to call it intermittent marriage or something like that. It'd be pretty oh, cool. But, <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was a privilege doing this and it was awesome. And thanks for the invite. No I problem. I really appreciate it. I will, I will hype her shit up too. If she ever starts one or when she's, when she starts one, I will hype her up. Okay. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. This is definitely fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks brother. Take care. Hey guys, while we're on this break, I want to reach out. I know um, around this time of year, you know, it's getting cold. We got the holidays coming up, Halloween, Thanksgiving. You know what I get? It's hungry. I get real 
those home style foods going on and what better way to crave that than lakes homestead goods okay it's actually ran by my wife danielle runs it off her facebook page or you can reach out at 417-365-4993 she makes everything from homemade bread whether it's cinnamon raisin and white bread to butter homemade butter cookies any type of thing you can think of she's even working on other stuff right now reach out she is the one to set you up with homemade products that are good and good for you thanks guys